Oh, hello. Hello. Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back to Failure Peace uh, Theater. This is episode four. Uh, we are going to be discussing the 2003 Hulk film. As And uh, with me, as always, is my affable and amiable co-host and sister. Catherine. Hello. 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 Uh, so this is Tim and Catherine back again to discuss another cinematic miss uh, in the hopes of finding a little bit of gold in them thar hills. All right. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, kick this off. We're going to talk a little bit about what we've been watching and consuming, see if there's anything that we can recommend. So what have you been up to? I have I have watched the Jeffrey Epstein Netflix documentary, Filthy mm. Rich. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of avoided the, the Epstein case like the details of it like I, i've always i've known the yeah, the gist of everything and i've kind of followed what's happened <clears throat> but i kind of dug into the case and learned as much as i could um it's really harrowing to watch but it's it's an excellent documentary very very good to the survivors and victims that's cool uh yeah there have been several documentaries that i've had kind of in my queue for a while that I have not taken the time to uh, to delve into, but that has certainly been one of them. Um, obviously, uh, uh, something that's still in the news right now. We've got yep. some additional developments in that case, so got to keep Julian uh, alive. That's right, if we can. Yeah. Uh, all right. Anything else? Um, I've been rewatching a few movies. I. Most I've been doing more reading lately and checking out some short stories and stuff as I'm writing a short story. Um, but but yeah, the Epstein thing was the, probably the biggest. Um, I also finally watched Midsummer. Mm, yeah, um, that's on my list too. I haven't built up the guts to uh, watch it. Ari Aster's stuff is uh, is always challenging. It is definitely not as harrowing to watch as something like Hereditary. Mm, okay, um, that's good to know. Hereditary, you know, had a lot of uh, shocking moments, turns, things in mm, it. Um, for sure. Midsummer is less of that. It's got, it's a little funnier. I don't know. I found it. I found moments in it really funny. Um, but it is very strange and takes a lot from like the original uh, Wicker Man movie. Yeah, that's a common comparison I've heard is sort of on that same tone, you know, the mysterious cult, isolation, bringing people in, that kind of things. And it does so that a, a really well. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of my list as well. Um, all right, anything else? Oh, uh, I don't think so. What hmm. about you? Um, well, I, I was a bit surprised. Uh, we were flipping around on Netflix trying to find something and the new Will Ferrell movie Eurovision Song Contest colon the story of Fire Saga um, <laughs> one of his many uh, overlong movie names uh, was was surprisingly good um, to say that it's the best Will Ferrell comedy in years is not a high bar to clear by any stretch of the imagination true true but uh, very much on par with a lot of his earlier stuff. Uh, I think, you know, Farrell has a very specific character that he is very good at playing. 
you know, Ron, you're Ron Burgundy, the guy from Step Brothers. These sort of middle-aged, middle-aged losers that somehow are still able to be semi-successful at what they do. And this character falls very much into that. Uh, it is wrapped in a kind of loving tribute to the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> um, which uh, works really well. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. are not super familiar with Eurovision and sort of it's the space that it occupies is this, in many ways, the, the original sort of televised singing contest, uh, but very political and strange and goofy in its own way. But it, it really sort of brings you into that world, kind of helps you understand a bunch of the different aspects of it, all from the perspective of a, you know, long shot Icelandic band, which is, is what Farrell is the, the leader of, with Rachel McAdams, who is amazing. Like, yeah. if anything, Rachel McAdams is the reason to watch this movie. Uh, she's fantastic, and I'm not. That's coming from somebody who's not a huge Rachel McAdams fan. You know, yeah. I, I don't. I don't rewatch The Notebook six times a year. And, I've and never cry. seen The Notebook. You know, I've yes, like I, I don't do any of that. But um, you know, I've always enjoyed her. I really liked her in About Time, that Richard Curtis movie with Domhnall Gleeson uh, that came out back in like 2013. Mm-hmm. You know, and a bunch of other things that she's done that have been really solid. But she anchors this movie. She's so good. Uh, just you know, sells it completely. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, the you know it's it's a song contest movie, so the, the beats of it are very familiar, very generic. But that kind of works in its favor because you can just kind of follow along very quickly, and and they can really sort of play upon some some cool stuff. But yeah, very much the one of the best feral things I've seen in a, a really long time. So a, a pretty easy recommendation there, especially if you have Netflix. There's really no reason not to check it out, I guess. But as we watch that. Um, a lot of video games been trying to work through uh, Last of Us 2, which I just finished up a couple days ago. Uh, very impressed. Uh, it was a really good game. Uh, it's far too long. Yeah. Far too long. Uh, I think we can say that about most Naughty Dog games, but that game is straight up about 10 hours longer than it needs to be. Um, very much worth it. Uh, I think that it's it's an incredibly competent game. It's a story that's pretty well told despite its length and pacing problems. It feels a lot like, um, you know, in, in genre fiction, you know, you get those, those genre stories, you know, like a zombie story, and, but you've, you've got a writer who's really layering on some literary qualities to that genre, right? Like they're really, yeah. you can feel them working behind the scenes that I want this to be taken seriously. Yes, it's a book with zombies in it, but it's really not the point. And this is very much that, right? It's a zombie story. It's in a world with zombies, but that is not what they are dealing with at all. Yeah. Right? And, and it, it really comes through. So, you know, an easy recommendation for Last of Us 2, um, but it is a, a difficult game to play. And the, the deal breaker, I think, for a lot of people is that you you have to, at least... It, I know what you, happens, so... Well, sure, but but uh, there is there is pet and animal murder in that game yeah. and, and for a lot of people that's a huge breaking point and it very nearly was for me and I, I don't necessarily have that problem most of the time but it was it's brutal and and they make you feel it that's uh, a pretty so there is that, that that is a deal breaker for me like i can't personally play things like that mm-hmm. um yeah like i i even struggled with chasing the bird around in the trees and what remains of edith finch um mm-hmm. Because I was like, I don't want to kill this bird. And then they were like, now kill a seal. And I'm like, Fuck, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty rough. And and it's it's it 
all compounds in the the thematic elements of the game. You know, they're they're making you do it for a very specific set of reasons. Yeah. But it's, uh, I think for a lot of people, that's that's going to be like a hard no, just not you know being forced to do that. So, um, but overall, uh, you know, still very much worth people's time. I think it's it's a, a really good game. It's a, obviously a huge technical achievement. Uh, probably one of the most bespoke environments in video games I've ever seen. Every street corner, every building, everything feels handmade. You know, nothing feels yeah. repeated. Nothing feels. I mean, I'm sure there were like, you know, some busted up rusty cars that they reused and stuff. But most of that game feels like a very talented artist sat down and made this thing just for this spot for you to see for five seconds as you're sprinting through. You know, it's just remarkable probably why they have all their labor problems yeah. <laughs> for being honest but uh yeah but anyway so last of us two uh, very enjoyable i really liked that and that's about it you know I've, I've definitely watched a few other things but nothing that really you know blew me away cool cool all right uh well today we are going to be discussing not the incredible hulk <laughs> Not the Avengers era Marvel Cinematic Universe Hulk, but the Forgotten Hulk. The Hulk that Marvel would rather you not remember. And that, of course, is the 2003 Ang Lee directed Hulk. My favorite. Right? It's, it's simply called. It's, it's an interesting one. It's going to be a good one to discuss. So uh, we can talk a little bit about the, the sort of failure component of this film. Uh, ultimately, it did not review well. Uh, audiences responded very negatively to it, and it did not come close to making its budget back. Uh, it, internationally, I think it made budget, but definitely not enough to you know, make marketing costs and things like that. So widely considered a failure, not necessarily a bomb, but it did not do the business that something like X-Men had done a yeah. couple of years before, or even that X2 had done earlier uh, or around the same time in 2003. So um, in terms of our, our Rotten Tomato standings, uh, we have a 62% critical response on Rotten Tomato and a 29% audience response. And the audience response is with nearly 430,000 reviews. Oh. So a lot of people have very bad feelings towards this movie. <laughs> um, and I will say that, uh, you know, going back and doing these older films and looking at Rotten Tomatoes, you know, one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of the positive reviews on some of these movies are recent yeah. right rotten tomatoes has pulled them in from newer sources you know a couple of the, the hulk reviews that i've got to uh, discuss that are, are quite positive are from the last couple of years uh, I, don't, this? I don't think that's Go. really useful for rotten tomatoes i mean that's not I mean, that would be like taking our podcast and making that into a, a qualitative review of the film i don't i wouldn't want to do that because how does that help the film now <laughs> Like yeah, it, it, it already came now. out, <laughs> and it confuses the context of the original yeah. uh, response. You know, uh, because there there has been a turnaround on this film. Uh, a lot of people, you know, in my reading and prep for the episode, have have seen this now as an underappreciated gem. You know, at the time it did not hit. We'll talk about some of the reasons why that probably happened, but ultimately people have kind of turned on this and said, "Hey, this is worth your time." Uh, and, and rightly so, as I think we'll discuss. But uh, so its uh, score on Metacritic uh, is 54, so pretty much right down the middle of the road. 
uh, a lot of mixed reviews from reviewers at the time, some of the other ones I've pulled. But uh, yeah, it, just a, a sort of middling critical response. So not hated, not loathed, although definitely more loathed by you know just regular viewers than critics. But I, I think we can probably understand that given Ang Lee's status as a sort of critical yeah. darling director. Yeah. Even at this time, he had that status, which was either only further you know, sort of solidified with movies later on, like Brokeback Mountain and, and some of his, his more recent work. Um, all right, so some reviews um, pulled from Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic uh, from the New York Post, and this is actually from the time period. This is June 20th, 2003. Uh, the messy, disappointing, self-important, and utterly humorless version of the Marvel comic book character may be the toughest flick with, the green, with a green protagonist to sit through since The Grinch. Wow. So equating it with the Jim Carrey Grinch, which, I, you know, again, is a bold choice from the New York Post. Um, but a, a lot of the, f the terms that he uses here, messy, disappointing, self-important, humorless, these were really common in most of the reviews that I read and sort of sum up a lot of the critical response. You know, it takes itself too seriously. You know, it's a guy, it's about a big green guy. Why is it so serious? Uh, Etc. You know, so that was pretty common. Uh, so another one here, this is from Terry Lawson, the Detroit Free Press. The Hulk is a seriously repressed movie, and like its hero-slash-victim, Bruce Banner, it doesn't know what it wants to be, serious and thoughtful, or big, green, money-making machine. Hmm. Uh, and that also was a pretty typical response, right? Saying that this movie doesn't know what it's supposed to be, right? So you can already see critics trying to compartmentalize this into a big, dumb summer action movie. Yeah, because well, this was before we started, you know, really accepting and coming back around to the blockbuster as a, a critically, you know, valuable film. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I don't think that happened until a few years later. Um, but I, I guess I can, I can see that criticism a little bit easier than I can calling it humorless and I don't know. It did, it had some trouble fitting in with the comic book movies of the time, but that's kind of right. why I liked it. Yeah, this is very different. So, um, all right, so let's get through the rest of these. So by far one of the most glowing reviews that I found for this, and it wasn't perfect, uh, was actually Roger Ebert. Uh, who Roger Ebert was was unfortunately not around. You know, he was around right at the beginning of the, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe era of movies, but but was not actively involved in movie reviews anymore. But um, he went to see this, and uh, he said, Ang Lee has boldly taken the broad outlines of a comic book story and transformed them to his own purposes. This is a comic book movie for people who wouldn't be caught dead at a comic book movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and I think that's probably the most that's probably the most accurate take on this movie of, of even all the positive ones that I read. Um, that this is not a film that started with the core premise. This is a comic book movie for comic book people. This said, we're gonna make a movie, you know, with characters and drama and complex emotions, and it's also going to happen to have this big green guy in it. You know, and and that is is it's probably the the most straightforward way to talk about this movie, because Ang Lee, uh, you know, as we'll we'll discuss, was not a 
action film director. He's still not, even though his last movie, Gemini Man, was ostensibly an action movie as well. Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, of course, was sort of in that vein too. But um, this this is not what we would consider a comic book movie today. Yeah. So, uh, so the common problems, we'll, we'll hit these real quick. Uh, not enough smashy smashy. Somebody actually <laughs> said that. Smashy smashy. Um, it's spelled uh, you know, that way. Uh, so not enough smashy smashy. Uh, some felt it was underacted, right? Like a lot of the performances were not adequate for the film, the right? Nick that they weren't. Movie. Yeah, underacting in a Nick Nolte movie, um, which I think is interesting. Uh, a lot of people were very positive on Banna. I will say that most people felt because this was really Eric Banna's first big movie. Like he had come from Australia, he'd done Chopper, which is what made him, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a household name in Australia and got him a lot of international attention. And then he was in The Castle. Um, that was his first big role. Um, and he'd right. done the Eric Banna show, which was kind of like, you know, the Ali G show. Um, yeah. Really, you know, genius comedian. And, yeah, surprisingly funny dude, for sure. And I was excited to see him in the role because, I don't know, I, I love Eric Banna because I, uh, I loved Mark mm-hmm. Chopper Reed. Um, so I'd kind of followed his career and I was really excited to see him in the movie. Um, and so, you know, you hear things like humorless and for it to be an Eric Bana vehicle is really funny because it's like, he was, he's a great comedian. Like he's a wonderful comedic actor. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are some really like clever moments in this movie, but overall in tone, it's just not a funny movie. And I, I didn't feel like it should be. Yeah, Lee's approach is 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 not funny. I mean, it has funny moments, especially a lot of dark humor. Like, there's a lot of really dark comedic humor in this, yeah. but it's you know it's nothing like the you know the golly gee whiz joke writing that we see in comic book movies now. Um, a lot of people noted its budget. You know that it was a very expensive film, which was pretty well known at the time. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic did. The vast majority of the Hulk effects, um, and and even at the time, like they were doing things that really nobody had done. The special before. effects look incredible in this movie. They still hold up pretty well, especially because they do everything in full lighting. Well, yeah. not everything. There's a couple of sequences that are at night, so they can kind of you know deal with texture and things like that. But the last big set of action sequences take place in broad daylight and. A lot they of movies didn't do that at that time. It still holds up. So uh, over budget and expensive, uh, which, okay. And then um, one reviewer said it lacks insanity and is too arty-farty for a superhero flick. Right? It's trying too hard <laughs> to, to be art. Uh, so I thought it also might be interesting because this is 2003 is when this film comes out, June 2003. And um, 2003 was a big movie year yes, right so pretty much everything from 1999 2000 through like 2006 you know this was the era of the massive blockbuster summer season right and we're still we still kind of have that right but it's usually you get about one a month maybe two you know and they they kind of do their thing and they go away this was another big year for movies so this was the year we got both matrix sequels uh, within six months of each other which again we've discussed before those don't exist but <laughs> something something to do with the matrix came out during this time period we'll, we'll not mention it further uh x2 came out this year so it was actually competing against another 
at this point, very successful Marvel property. X-Men had come out, and really this movie probably wouldn't exist without the success of X-Men. Um, although, you know, we probably have a longer conversation than we could have uh, about both Blade and X-Men contributing to, you know, the creation of, of this film. But uh, this is also the summer that Charlie's Angels Full Throttle came out, which was another <laughs> highly anticipated uh, sequel to a, a surprise blockbuster action hit. Uh, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, Jonathan Mostow's incredible follow-up to T2. well. It's not bad. Like it really Like Terminator isn't. Salvation, yeah. it has aged much better than they thought it did. Yeah, given where the Terminator franchise has gone, Terminator 3 ranks a lot higher now than it used to. Uh, again, like not Terminator saying much. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, but that's more of my, my issues with I, I don't like Amelia Clark, uh, which some people may not understand, but I, I think she's a terrible actress. Uh, and, well, I don't want to say a terrible actress. The things that I have seen her in, I do not particularly care for her. Uh, but in any case, uh, so T3, uh, this is the year of uh, Lord of the Rings 3, Return of the King. Uh, Which we were living for. Like that That was, mm-hmm. that yeah, was, was the huge. movie. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it, it, but it came much later in the year, right? It was past the summer blockbuster season. But still, huge year uh, for that. Uh, this is also the summer of Pirates of the Caribbean 1, which might have actually come out just a couple of... I don't remember the timeline exactly, but that may have been a couple of weeks before this oh, came out. Man. And that movie blew up. like. And I can still watch that movie. Just yeah. any time. Pirates 1 holds up very, very well. The sequels are problematic, although 2 is fine. Pirates of the Caribbean 2 is, is a very watchable film, for the most part. I like the it's, it's weakness is that It's weakness is that it has to be bundled with three to work as a movie like it's a movie split in half and three unfortunately has a lot of weaknesses it does it does i Um, still liked it but um yeah but yeah they should have they should have just probably stopped at the one movie disney can't do that no it's it's in their contract we can't stop at just one they're gonna make a movie about the ride we need to make a lot of movies about the ride so everybody rides the ride they're the the pringles of film studios you can't can't have just one. I've been I, that um, is one thing I've been binging on lately is just Disney media about Disney, especially the theme parks. I don't know. I've been getting kind of nostalgic thinking about when we visited Disney World as kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was showing uh, my husband kind of um, what the park was like when we visited, as opposed to what it's like now. Yeah, vastly different. Crazy how different it is. And. I'm I'm really I'm struggling with the the Disney military industrial complex. I'm, I I want hard. it to stop. <laughs> I want it to be I, like it was, and I know that's silly. Sure, I mean to an extent, yes, uh, I do. But I I genuinely enjoy a lot of what Disney's putting out these days. As much as I hate to admit the machine that is building it, you know, I I'm a big MCU guy. Like I love that stuff. We I mean for you know treason day. We uh, watched uh, Captain America, First Avenger, right? Because it's you know, we kind of went as, we went as in an opposite direction for Treason Day. Uh, we watched Titanic because um, okay. Lindsay Ellis just put her video on Titanic yeah, out, and I love her. She is mm-hmm. she is my YouTube girlfriend. I just I love her so much. Um, and she got me all nostalgic about Nata- about Titanic, and of course that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies. So. Sure. I was like, why not? 
relive the magic. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I hate that every movie that James Cameron makes now has an immediate brigade of people who have to come out and be like, James Cameron isn't that great. It's just, it's just inevitable. It's, it's a turn when you're at the top of your game for so long that people are, are just going to disparage you yeah. to disparage you. But I mean, and I know you don't have any particular love for like Avatar and stuff, but Avatar is a great effing movie. Like it's really good. It was a fun movie. It's just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it, just, it knows what it is, you know, I kind of and regard James it does exactly in his catalog the way that I regard a few of his other films that are not mm -hmm. my favorite. Like I love the abyss. But I don't, I don't reach for that on the shelf. Like that's not a movie I ever think about watching, just sure. because it wasn't a film that resonated with me when I was young. Um, but when it comes to like Titanic, I was how old was I when that movie came out? Twelve, eleven? Um, I think it was eleven. Yeah, it would have been. Was it ninety seven? I think it was ninety seven. So I yeah, was eleven so or twelve. Eleven. Mm -hmm. Um. And I saw it on opening day with some family friends of ours because our parents did not want to go on opening mm -mm. day. No, um, we did not do opening day movies. No, we were late show people. Was, yeah. We only did that with a few things like Lord of the Rings. Dad wanted to be there opening day for that. Sure. Because sure. he was a, yeah. he's a big fan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think but, I have his copy of The Silmarillion around here somewhere. Actually, I have it. Is that, do you have it now? Yeah. Um, one of us wound up with it. One sure. of us is protecting it. Um, so, I don't know. that. That's gotten me sort of thinking about these nostalgic movies and these summer blockbusters and, and you know, how much that has changed and shifted and grown, especially with the growth of the Marvel Universe. And I sort of wish that Hulk had just, I think you mentioned this earlier, had just been later in the in the rush mm -hmm. of Marvel films. <laughs> this movie is literally two and a half years too early. Yeah. That's its problem, <clears throat> in my opinion. And, and we'll get into that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, another one of those films that was not received well, primarily because it did not fit the mold for this type of film that people had in their minds. And you could argue the mold that people had in their minds for Hulk as a character, which has always been sort of a goofy... I mean, he's, he's a guy who becomes a giant green rage monster, right? Like, that is not necessarily the thing that you go to to mine familial drama. Yeah. Right? Like, that's not your go-to, but that's where Angley goes with this. So... Uh, we'll we'll definitely get into that here in a sec. But uh, so we have uh, the last film that I wanted to mention and call out came out in two thousand three was Too Fast, Too Furious. Yeah. Right. Um, the the continuation of the now inimitable Fast and Furious franchise. Yeah. So um, you know the landscape for successful blockbuster film was very different. Right. Very different. Uh, in 2003, and and I think Hulk is a victim of that. At the end of the day, uh, okay. So let's let's summarize Hulk, uh, because this film does take some very interesting avenues to tell its story. Um, it changes the Hulk mythos, if you want to call it that, a little bit. Although Hulk's mythos has already been changed several times in the comics. Um, kind of had to, you be. know. <laughs> yeah, I mean the initial sort of. You know, you know. Originally, he was working on a gamma bomb, 
that exploded and irradiated him. Well, eventually we kind of wanted to get away from him being a bomb designer. (laughs) And uh, it became more of like a lab accident, which of course was solidified by the film. And this movie has a, or solidified by the TV show, which that is the other thing before we, we summarize this, we need to address the, the very large elephant in the room that a lot of modern viewers of this, this film and Marvel movies in general, maybe don't know was that Hulk was one of the very, very few superhero properties to find tremendous success on television. Um, The Incredible Hulk television show was incredibly successful, culturally powerful, right? I mean, Lou Ferrigno, uh, the the, bodybuilder who played the Hulk on the show, as I'm sure most people are aware, because he's appeared in modern Marvel movies as a callback. Um, I mean, his he has a career because of that show. It was mm-hmm. massive. It was huge. Um, the show did make some significant changes to the Hulk mythos, right? Uh, the name change, which we will address here in a bit. He was, uh, in the comics, he's always been known as Bruce Banner, although uh, early versions had him as Robert Bruce Banner, so he's Bob Banner. Um, but that got changed. Um, but the TV show changed him to David Banner, Um, and so a lot of people, that's how they knew Hulk, right? They didn't know his name was Bruce Banner. They knew him as David Banner. So this movie has to deal with that a little bit. Um, whereas the modern films have just wiped that away basically. But this movie is very aware that a lot of people walking into that theater are going to have experience with that show. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, you know, it has its cameos, right? We get a Stanley cameo, which had been established in X-Men, but he comes back in this one. But we also get a Lou Ferrigno cameo yep, at the same right, time, right? right? Next one. Um, and so, you know, this this movie is very aware of the cultural impact of that television show and um, has to sort of accommodate for it, right? It doesn't try to, you know, salt the earth and pretend like it never happened. It tries to sort of bring those people in and say, hey, you remember that show? Yeah, we know that show too. And so that's kind of an interesting component of it. But, you know, Hulk occupied this weird space as a result that he actually had some cultural permanence, right? Kind of like, you know, Tim Burton with Batman 89, you know, sort of coyly acknowledging in his small ways, the the 67 TV show, you know, so Hulk's in a similar boat. And I think that that caused them to make some decisions with this, both in its series, because the show was actually pretty serious. Like it Mm -hmm. had humorous moments, but you know, like, uh, obviously, like, shows like Family Guy and stuff have riffed on it with, but the end of every episode of The Hulk was David Banner, like, hitching his way out of town because he can't stay there. He can't settle down. He can't have a life mm-hmm. because he has this horrible thing inside of him. It was this very melancholy thing. And the final theme, the da-da-da, da-da-da, you know, like, he's walking away and it's like, well, his life sucks. Sorry about that. Yeah, sucks to so, be the Hulk. <laughs> sucks to be the Hulk, you know, like... I think that that really had an impact on their their storytelling. And it's interesting movie. they've circled back around to that idea in the Avengers movies with how much it sucks to be the Hulk. Right. Um, yeah. They haven't kind of driven it home quite as much, but they have come back around to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just not, it doesn't have the same impact, I guess. Well, I, unfortunately, in the, the current MCU, the Hulk it occupies a sort of secondary space. Yeah. You know, they've never given him his own movie, frankly, cause I don't, I don't think they know what to do with him. And I think that the, I mean, let's be honest, two basically failed attempts to do solo Hulk movies 
have have warded them off, right? I, I don't think we're ever going to get one because I think they have relegated Hulk to a secondary player in the Avengers, which is really sad because one, I, I love Mark Ruffalo's performance as Hulk, uh, more his performance as Banner than Hulk. I mean, obviously, Hulk he's just this big yeah, CG Hulk's thing. Yeah, Hulk's not really a performance. So no, I mean, like it's a it's a smashy guy, but uh, I like his take on. Bruce Banner is this very contained, very sort of locked down dude, at least up until Endgame. Because Endgame, they kind of go the Grey Hulk route. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've seen yeah. Endgame yet. Um, farts. Um, I didn't finish it, though. They, they kind of go the, the, the Grey Hulk, where he's melded the Bruce Banner and the Hulk components together, right? So he's a little bit weaker overall, because he's not raging out all the time. But... You know, he he has full control of his faculties, right? He's smart Hulk, you know, like the Peter David comics right. back in the 90s. Um, and so, you know, I, I think this take on Hulk is actually really good because, one, it's the only one that actually shows that as he gets angrier, he gets bigger, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is really cool. Like, nobody does that with the Hulk anymore in terms of, like, the, you know, the visual, uh, like, medium Hulk takes. So that's kind of cool. But, you know, so to sort of bring it back around so we can, you know, talk about this monster of a film. <laughs> uh, they are also acknowledging the existence of that show. Mm -hmm. They can't get away from that completely, right, and pretend like it didn't happen. So we got a couple of choices with this. So uh, I guess let's just get into it. Uh, so this movie actually opens in the 1970s, right, around the time that the show was set. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it begins on an army base, right? And, and pretty quickly we get a bunch of characters that if you are a comic book person, you're going to recognize. One of them, of course, is Thunderbolt Ross, mm -hmm. right? So Thunderbolt Ross is an existing character in the MCU. Now he's played by um, William Hurt uh, in, in some limited roles, mostly in the Avengers movies. Uh, although he is, you know, gets a cameo here and there. And he actually was changed, it was changed over to him for the 2008 Hulk reboot. Uh, and so, and then we get David Banner, right? Who's credited in the film just as the father, but he is uh, in a, a researcher on a base. It's it meant to look like. Did they ever say like it's New Mexico or something? But it's meant to feel like it's. It's supposed to, yeah. It'd be like you know Area Fifty One type stuff, you know. So he's out there. He's working on stuff. And the opening credit sequence, which is fantastic, by the way, I love it. It's, yeah. It's so good. It's the most comic booky thing you've that's ever what, seen. That's like what it's, hooked me from the start. I was like, these, yeah. these transitions, these cuts and framing devices, it's so interesting. Right, because it's, it's basically a wordless opening with uh, a lot of writing on screen, you know, of like, oh, will it work? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, but basically, we've come to find out very quickly that David Banner is, is experimenting with uh, human regeneration, right? The, the ability for the human immune system to not only cure disease, but possibly to reanimate cells. And, it, you know, there's a lot of shots of frogs and mm -hmm. sea life that we know can heal itself. And ultimately, we, we find out that he is working on some sort of regenerative program, right? And in the MCU, they would have called it the super soldier program, right? That's eventually what they kind of wrap that into. Because now Hulk's origin in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that he was attempting to replicate the Captain America super soldier program and failed, right? And so uh, it's something along those lines. He is told to stop uh, the military, you know, backing that he has doesn't want him to continue the research. They feel it's not worth his time. He does it in secret and eventually winds up 
experimenting on himself, right? That sort of ultimate mm -hmm. point for every scientist character in a film where they, they test it on myself. So he tests it on himself, doesn't really seem to work initially, um, but then he finds out that he his wife is pregnant. Um, and, and so now it is his son, Bruce, that uh, has something different about him, right? A, a genetic mutation. Something has happened inside of him to cause some kind of change. And the dad is working with him. Again, this is all happening very rapidly, right? This is like a yeah. three-minute opening sequence. We are getting just dumps of exposition very rapidly. But it works so, yeah. so well. Um, and so we see a young Bruce Banner, and, and then something goes wrong, right? There's a green explosion on the base, and... Uh, Banner's parents wind up dead, and then very rapidly we find out that he got uh, adopted by a seemingly very nice family. What's his last name? Uh, uh, like the other family's last He doesn't even know his last name's Banner in the movie. It's like Parquet or something. Like it's a completely different uh, last name. But uh, he gets adopted and eventually becomes a scientist and, shockingly enough, begins working on very similar stuff. And that's kind of brings us up to speed. So he's working in a lab and uh, he's fallen in love and recently out of love with Betty Ross, a another scientist in his lab. And uh, when we find him at the beginning, he's, he's a little bit frustrated with his life, right? And, and that's kind of the core thing that they establish very early, I think, and that Banna does a really good job of establishing is that he's uncomfortable in his skin, Right. Yeah. So there's something there's something off about him. He's got a very affable nature, which is really cool. He kind of feels a little bit Clark Kent in the Donner Superman, a little bit of Christopher Reeve. You know, he's kind of goofy. You know, the, our introduction to him as an adult, he's riding a bike and he's got like a big dumb he looks goofy. Like a total doofus. Yeah, he's got like a goofy bike helmet on that everybody makes fun of him for wearing because he's, you know, why are you being so safe, bro? You know, like that kind of, you know, dumb stuff. But again, a little bit of humor, a little bit of awkwardness. But yet he he has this presence. He has you know obviously some skill, and uh, and so on. So uh, from there we we kind of come to see that he's working on similar research, uh, that he's you know working with the immune system, and that they have started experimenting with gamma ray bombardment to see if they can trigger the effects that they want. Uh, and the gamma ray machine is actually. It's nearly identical to the one that they used in the opening of the Incredible Hulk show, kind of ramped up for the movie, but it's it's very much you know calling back to yeah. the TV show and the device that they used to irradiate him with uh, gamma particles. Um, so then after that, I, I guess I'll let you take over for a bit if you want to you know share a bit. So the you know the the lab work is going on, and then stuff happens. So what's next? Well, um, hold on, let me center myself here. Um, the gamma radiation part, they, what I really think is interesting is that throughout the beginning of the film and all up until this, this point, all this introduction, there's kind of been this, um, thing that Ang Lee keeps coming back to, which is Bruce's connection to nature. Um, mm -hmm. that several moments, like as a child, you see him kind of staring out the window and he sort of goes into this almost meditative trance thing, just looking at the landscape and nature. And it sort of goes back to all of the, um, creatures and natural things that his father was experimenting on and put into this research that sort of gave him not necessarily a, you know, hu superhuman 
powers, but almost like these naturalistic, you know, connections to the earth. Like that, I just thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, there's there's a tremendous amount of nature footage and photography in this movie, which I think is a little bit of Ang Lee. Like Ang Lee feels like a Ang Lee grounds his films in nature. I mean, you can really see this in pretty much all of them that the landscape in which they appear and and take place is is part of them. You know, he's not very much into. I mean, he obviously is. He's a filmmaker, so he's building sets and everything, and he's crafting the visuals that he wants. But it's always surprising how much of Ang Lee's films are, are nature photography. Right, like he's he's very adept at it too, uh, which we definitely get in the back half of the film. But yeah, so Bruce is is tied to his father's work, and um, a lot of little subtle shots at the beginning, a lot of you know shots of his hands sort of grasping into fists, you know, early. So again, we, he's kind of an off kilter character. I don't know if you're supposed to like him right away. I really don't think you are. Um, he's like a bull, but I don't think he's established very quickly as like, hey, this is our lovable protagonist, well, right? and which you know, I think is interesting. In the first sort of moments that he meets up with Betty Ross in the lab, um, you know, you get an understanding of their relationship through sort of this tense little conversation <clears throat> in which she jokes about being attracted to emotionally distant men. And of course, she is taking a stab at him Mm-hmm. And so it kind of adds to that that characterization that he is pent up. I think that's one of the phrases that even his mother uses about him. Yeah, one time she says something similar. Up. The the adoptive mother does say something similar that you know one day you'll kind of unlock that part of yourself or something. And um, you know that if for people who liked the TV show or liked the comic book, that's you know you know what it's building towards. So those are nice little nice little touches. I thought. Um, and that I will say, like I'm a big fan of shot reverse shot, right? Like, and and a director who can do shot reverse shot well, I think it sort of elevates their tier. So yeah. this this lab scene that you're talking about, I, I made a couple notes about it actually because I thought it was so good. One um, huge Jennifer Connelly fan. Holy yeah. crap! <laughs> like uh, Jennifer Connelly is great. She. I can probably agree with some of the criticism that she doesn't really have enough to do in this movie. Um, I think she does very, very well with what she is given, certainly better than Liv Tyler does with the character in the 2008 Hulk. Um, But this particular scene I love because the entire thing is shot with them back to back, facing away from each other, never making eye contact. Yeah. Right? If this film was, if this exact Hulk film was made today by a, a MCU certified director. This would be them probably having dinner. They probably wouldn't even be in a lab because labs are intimidating. Mm-hmm. It'd probably be them having dinner, staring at each other across a table. And then, you know, every once in a while, a wistful gaze, you know, to some outdoor patio or something. But this entire sequence, which is, is surprisingly tense. I mean, it's a bit jokey, but you can tell that Connolly's side is very serious. There's awkwardness. Like it, it's so yeah, it, well communicates awkwardness. And, and the the shot itself reinforces it and it's it's brilliant. Like it's really well done. He doesn't even do shot reverse shot. They're in the same frame, but they never look at each other. Yeah. And you know, they're kind of like sideways glances over the shoulder. And it's just really, really well done. It is not the kind of stuff that you would see in your, you know, everyday blockbuster action movie. Um 
And I love how it really prioritizes her perspective too. Like Bruce is the outsider in that scene. He's the one that has no idea what's going on. And so he's the one that's blurred out in the background while she gets to just, you know, have the emotional run of the scene, which is really cool. Again, not something that you're going to see in your, your typical, you know, blockbuster Marvel action movie these days, which, you know, is unfortunate. It seems like Um, the modern approach to the Hulk is just to make him understandable and sort of perfunctory and more approachable just as a a character. And so they've emptied the character out of a lot of its interest. Um, Uh, Yeah. And this movie didn't do that. This movie put a lot more into making the character more rounded. Like to say that you, you might not like Bruce Banner. It seems, seems, so contradictory to what the Marvel Cinematic Universe puts out now. Like, well, you can't not like him. What are you crazy? But in this movie, there's like a depth to this character and you get it right away. Sorry. (laughs) Well, no, absolutely. Then, and the question that Ang Lee is answering that nobody wants to acknowledge anymore is what would the psychology of a man who does this be? Yeah. Right whose rage triggers this overt and radical transformation, right? And how would you live with that? The, the modern MCU movies, the Marvel movies, specifically the first Avengers, because really by the end of the first Avengers, they've kind of dispensed with this idea. Mm-hmm. And as much as I love the line, but that's it, Cap, um, or that's it, Tony, I'm always angry, right? Like that line at the end of the Avengers as much as I love it in the moment, and I think it's a brilliant sort of build-up moment to see the Hulk finally smash and, and do the things we've wanted the Hulk to do for the entire film, that line also renders the internal struggle of the Hulk and who that guy would be invalid yeah. because he's got it under control, right? He's always angry. So when he lets it out, it's because he wants it out. And obviously they play with that, you know, he gets triggered and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately they, in that line, they say, eh, it's no big deal for him. He's dealt with it. But what Ang Lee refuses to accept is that someone who is this capable of destruction, what do you have to be? And what have had, what would have had to happen to you to make that possible? You know, and it's a really interesting question that again, in a film where Hulk is a secondary character, right? Where he's off to the side. And, and we just need him to beat Thanos up in this scene. We don't have time for that, right? We don't have the emotional heft that we can attribute to that character in the same way, which is one of the reasons why, you know, and I know we're talking way too much about the new movies instead of this, it's this older film. It's important, though, because this is our understanding of the Hulk now. <clears throat> right, because, you know. I'm, I mean, something that came up before we, we started recording was that Marvel has erased this movie. Yeah, and and... It's one of the major missteps for me from Age of Ultron is making uh, Natasha, a Black Widow, and Hulk fall in love, uh, which makes zero sense. It was a terrible decision. Uh, It's one of the worst ones that I think Whedon made for the cinematic universe. I know he fought for it, and I I can kind of understand why he wanted... Because, again, if the Hulk's a secondary character, we're not going to bring in Betsy Ross, even though we have Thunderbolt Ross right there. We're not going to bring in Betsy Ross as his love interest, right? So we've got to make it somebody on the team. Well, who's the available woman? Well, that's Natasha because she's the only woman. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, and so let's make her fall in love with the Hulk, and then we'll get a little bit of drama out of you know Hulk being like, I can't, 
I can never be together. I can never have, you know, but it, again, it, it, it all feels hollow. None of that stuff works. None of it has any emotional heft and it just ends up being awkward, which is why the later movies just wiped it away. Right. Like, Oh, Natasha's sad that Hulk is dead and Hulk is sad that Natasha's dead. Uh, you know, whatever. Um, you know, that's, that's great. Uh, but it, it has no bearing on the film whatsoever and no dramatic heft in the long run, which, you know, again, is like, which is, why is, even bother? Which know? is characteristic of the entire Marvel Avengers run. I mean, they're, they lack In an unfortunate number of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, again, I, I guess we could talk, you know, that's, that's kind of the critical consensus about this one is it's too serious. And now the Marvel films are criticized for not being serious enough. Right. So either nobody has found that balance yet or no one can ever be satisfied in terms of the seriousness of the film. I <laughs> like think really, someone you know, found that balance. It just wasn't in a Marvel movie. Well, and that's it true. Was the dark night. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> and, and when I said that this movie came two and a half years too early, that's why yeah. is because Batman begins made a self serious stone cold superhero action film possible. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't until Christopher Nolan did that, that it was, it was capable of existing as we know it today. And what Zack Snyder has often tried and failed to continue to do in a post Nolan universe. Um, but anyway, so, so let's get back to this. Uh, again, what we see here is a very complex version of the Hulk and the movie spends a tremendous amount of time helping us understand the person that eventually morphs into the Hulk and the situations created in his life to allow the Hulk not only to exist physically for his, you know, genetic alteration to happen, but emotionally, right? Because Hulk is a product of emotion. It's a product of rage, real, legitimate, actual rage. No decision-making process. No, hey, I'm always angry, buddy. I got this under control. None of that. But legitimate, I am out of control, I can't keep this saddled anymore and it's going to rip out of me uh, and it's going to have purple pants on. <laughs> right. Like that is, that is what this movie is. And it's shocking because he's supposed to be this timid guy, but yet there's this thing inside of him. And I think Ban is really doing a kickout job. So in any case, uh, so we get a lot of establishment of Bruce and Betty's relationship, a couple of flashbacks, a lot. Um, you know, just to understand sort of the complexity of who they are and, and how they've gotten along. Uh, but also to to reference the fact that now Bruce has lost that relationship and he's quite isolated. Um, and then we get uh, Nick Nolte's character comes in, who is in, initially introduced as a, a sort of crazy-haired janitor. Uh, but we, are, we quickly find out that he has many ulterior motives. He grabs a hair sample from the lab uh, from Bruce. And uh, it's quickly revealed that this, of course, is David Banner, his father. Uh, named David because of its you know, callback to the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has some kind of plan that is an operation. Bruce is is sort of struggling with his research not working, right? So they're they're going to lose their funding. The military's involved. You know, a bunch of you know actual serious real drama. Like, what am I going to do? Who am I going to be if I can't do this work anymore? Uh, what's going to happen to me? You know, those kinds of questions. And so this is all is, in the wake of him having been blasted by the gamma radiation and having no effects from it, no apparent effects, except right. that he feels yeah. great. Yeah, I, I guess we can't uh, get too far away from that. That he, there is a lab accident, you know, as is, is tradition. 
uh, he rescues their lab assistant, which is a callback to his original origin because he was blasted with gamma radiation from uh, a bomb explosion that he was working on because his assistant was was left out in it and he runs out to save him and, and then gets blasted as a result. So that similar thing happens here. The assistant is trapped in the lab. Bruce goes in and he blocks the the bulk of the radiation with his own body to save this other guy's life, which he does. Yeah. Uh, but in, surprisingly enough, nothing bad happens, right? His body seems completely um, fine and he, he suffers no ill effects whatsoever, which of course is shocking to everyone. Uh, the janitor, of course, is is watching him. We get a, a great, almost like Halloween esque shot of him looking out the window to the janitor standing on the <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the the you know uh, sidewalk across the street, and then he disappears. You know, uh, but Bruce starts having dreams. He starts seeing these sort of green visions. You know, and, and you know, obviously, the the film knows what we're we're waiting for, and it's trying to sort of say, hey, we we know it's coming. But it's, um, it does a really nice kind of tension build before him unleashing the Hulk, where we get mm-hmm. so many um, little moments like, it's coming, it's it's going to be here, like, it's getting to it. So that, you know, there was not a lot of smashy-smashy, but when it finally gets to the smashy-smashy, I felt like it was a huge payoff. Yeah, and I feel like it it's really trying to justify the level of rage, you know, because I guess that's something, too. Maybe this is, you know... You know, Ang Lee and and his his screenwriter sort of playing with a bit like, you know, I guess we can briefly talk about Ang Lee as a director. So, you know, my prior experience before this movie with Ang Lee was Sense and Sensibility, right? Like, this is the guy that was directing like these very quiet and sensitive period dramas, um, and and some some more rambunctious stuff too. Don't get me wrong; like, he's not stuffy director man but these very like carefully constructed tonal pieces and and we get a lot of that here where he is really trying to help us understand the emotional landscape of these characters and where they are and then to understand what would trigger a person to dispense with all control right because that's what the hulk is he's the he's the loss of control absolutely out of all of of this very quiet guy's control and it's and it's it's really interesting that he wants to sort of justify what would make all those shackles break off yeah. right because in society we we don't get to do that right nobody in a society gets to go off the handle without repercussions right and there certainly are well yeah like now we have entire subreddits devoted to public freakouts people but, hulking out uh you know but at the time and especially Ang Lee who is is Taiwanese um, you know, he is addressing this elephant in the room of what would have to happen to cause a human being to forgo all of those controls. Yeah. And, and he really kind of builds it up. Right. And, and so everything is going wrong in Bruce's life. He's lost Betty. He's about to lose his funding. This other company is coming in. They want to take his research and they want to take it away from him. So he can't do it anymore. Uh, the reappearance of his father and, you know, the revelation of, of some of the things that happened in his past, like all of this stuff just compounds on this dude at once. And that makes him crack. And I, I think it's again, them wanting to justify it. You know, it's, it's not the, Hey, I got this, right? Yeah. No, it's like, no, I don't got this. And that's the point. 
Like it, and so the first Hulk transformation, um, that's after he uh, figures out that the janitor following him around is. Does, does Bruce knows that's right? But yeah, he figures it out, and uh, he figures out that's David Banner, and is starting to connect the dots. And that's when he has the first um, Hulk transformation. And right, because his violent. Yeah, Banner, the dad comes to visit him after the gamma radiation explosion, right? So he's in the hospital, he's convalescing, even though he feels fine. And uh, he shows up in the middle of the night with his, like, weird dogs, right, which become <laughs> important later. And and ba just straight up tells him, like, I'm your dad, I was experimenting on you when you were a kid, I was experimenting on myself, and uh, I think that there's something inside you now. And, and sort of begins the the triggering process because Ben is like I don't know you I don't know who you are I don't know what you're saying and it becomes this this like really tense scene and, and Banna eventually starts to lose it a little bit and tells him to get out um and, and get away from him and, and we get a little bit of a freak out there like just a bit right because again Banna's working this really well in, in the Hulk um he does a lot with his face uh he he's just like it's it's hard to to express in words what he is doing in terms of his acting performance, but he is is very much playing a guy who is right on the line, and it's and he does a really good job with it, I think. Uh, but so they have their initial confrontation. Um, Banna starts to lose a little bit. I think he might even turn a little green. Yeah, in there's that like a scene, little flash. Like a little they flash. Do that a lot. Yeah, there's a bunch of that at the in the first sort of half of the film. Uh, of him just sort of like almost losing it, but the, you know the the scale qu doesn't quite tip into Hulk territory. It's just such yet. a wonderful metaphor for how anger actually works. Yeah, it's being handled like a real emotional reaction. Um. Um, so the next major development, uh, basically, uh, Betty Ross's dad, Thunderbolt, uh, sort of comes in and says, "Hey." You know, we've heard about this research, and, and he has figured out who Bruce is and who his father is through his own uh, research and, and sort of looking at his history. And so he cautions Betty off of him, says, you need to stay away from this guy. Bruce continues to sort of, um, after the conversation with his dad, he, he sort of, uh, you know, starts to have flashbacks, right? Because that's the other thing that this movie does is... You know, at the core of the the Hulk rage transformation, as you said, it's the relationship with his dad, right? Yeah. So this fraught relationship with his father, the the compounded with his recent failures, his loss of Betty, his his now surging, uh, you know, repressed memories from his childhood. All of that comes together into the first you know Hulk transformation, which doesn't hit until about forty minutes into the movie, right? So, I mean, it's it's been a bit. Uh, so he hulks out inside of his uh, lab, begins destroying the lab, uh, has a confrontation with his father, and then, you know, goes to his home and collapses into his bed with no memory of anything that happened. Right? Betty shows up the next morning, and we get possibly one of the best scenes in this movie. And... Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'll tell you why. Okay, so the next morning, Betty and Bruce are sitting at the table, and Bruce is trying to explain this dream that he's had, right, of, of this feeling of power, right? And he specifically calls out the way that his heartbeat sounded and felt, right? Boom, boom, 
right? Like this, the heartbeat of some massive creature, right? Slow and steady and rhythmic. And we'll talk about when we get to this particular scene, but this scene is brilliant, right? Straight up. Like it's, it's Bruce. He is shoveling food into his face because of course his metabolism has gone crazy. So he's eating like a whole chicken for breakfast. Like <laughs> it's just nuts. And he's, and you know, he's got grease on his fingers and his face. Like Angley is not prettying up Banna in this sequence at all. Betty is listening to it. She doesn't know what to make of it. They get interrupted by Thunderbolt Ross, but this scene of him at breakfast came back to me later uh, in the film, even on my first watch. And, and uh, again, we'll talk about it when, when I get there, but this sequence establishes because as Bruce is recounting this, he loves it. Yeah. Right. It feels like good. he Because it's if, letting something out that's been kept in. Exactly. And, and again, I don't think this scene works without all of the effort before to show just how locked mm -hmm. down this guy is. But I mean, like the way that his face looks as he is describing this emotion, like Betty's visibly shaken by it. Like she doesn't understand what he's doing. But it's it's great. Like, and, and Banna feels ashamed as he's kind of talking about it, how much he enjoys the feeling. And this this sort of concept of repression just really hits home here. And it plays into something, a missed opportunity later, that even as I left the theater the first time in 2003 after seeing it, I was like, man, that would have been so cool. So we'll get there in a sec. But so uh, basically the, the government gets involved very quickly. Mm -hmm. And they are going to take over this research. They're going to lock Bruce out. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, Betty begins her a little investigative journey to, you know, look at the janitor. Bruce mentions that he, there was a janitor that came to visit him, um, claimed to be his father. So Betty kind of goes off and has a meeting with him, uh, which puts her in danger ultimately. And she likes the um, new Bruce. She likes this sort of unleashed version of him, but she doesn't really mm -hmm. know what to make of it. Right. And she's kind of hoping the janitor can provide some answers if he truly is uh, his father. But, um, so then uh, everything sort of develops very, very, very quickly. Um, the military comes in. They suspect that Bruce was involved in the destruction of the lab, which they see as an effort to keep them away from the research that they want. And uh, he gets blamed for that very quickly. So the military comes for him. They're going to take him away. They found his uh, what? He, they find his wallet. Like he left his wallet when his pants exploded. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he left his wallet in, in the lab. That's so true. they, they come for him. Not shy away from the pants ripping. No, in the first version of him, he's uh, basically naked. Um, you know, everything rips off. But then everything sort of culminates, you know, we're, we're almost an hour into the film and he hulks out visibly for the first time in his own house, right? They're coming for him, the sort of smarmy guy that has a past relationship with Betty and who wants to take Bruce's research for his Talbot. own company. Yeah, Talbot um, comes in and uh, just pisses him off completely. So he rages out, busts out of his home. They, they enrage him by shooting him. He gets even bigger right he goes from being about seven feet tall to being like 10 feet tall and uh and you know he just rages out destroys talbot's car in a fit of rage and then disappears you know so that's our first kind of big hulk out moment um but then he and meets betty right yeah. so betty's dad has told her to go to the, their cabin or whatever and stay there right because bruce is dangerous uh which he's not wrong uh, he's, he's not He's not dangerous for the reasons that he believes he is, but, you know, he is dangerous. And and here for me was the missed opportunity because when 
uh, Hulk first shows up, uh, Betty obviously has no idea who this is. Like she quickly figures it out. Like she's not stupid. Uh, you know, it still kind of looks like Eric Bana, but the missed opportunity for me was for Hulk to pick her up and hold her close. And then she hears the heartbeat that he had described that would have been at nice, the table. Yeah. And that's how she knows it's Bruce, right? Like just his description of what it felt like to be this thing would be enough. Uh, that was like my missed. I was like, Oh my gosh, dude, that would have been perfect. That might be the one thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's probably my one thing as we get back, we get down to the end that, that would have been the thing to sort of thematically bring this together. Uh, but then we get a really cool action sequence with the, the demon dogs, right? So David Banner has continued his, uh, experimentation with, you know, whatever technology is now alive and well in Bruce. Uh, and so he has created these uh, Hulk dogs. Yeah. Right. And so we've been seeing them all throughout the film. They've always been sort of hostile toward Bruce, but now they have been dispatched to kill Betty and Hulk gets into his first, you know, sort of fight. Um, and so these, these Hulk dogs are, are vicious and brutal. Uh, my favorite part of this scene, and I don't, I don't know if you have one is when he kills one of them, by flexing yep. his shoulder muscle. <laughs> yep. I love <laughs> it that bites part. his shoulder. He flexes the shoulder muscle and it snaps its jaw in half. And I know we were just earlier talking about, you know, dog death, but in this case, being Hulk guys, it's it's a little bit easier to And he was also uh, really accept. smart. He made the dogs threatening and kind of weird from the start so that you don't right. really get invested in the cute dog thing. Yeah. And they're then not cute. They're dogs. CG monsters in these scenes. Like you don't really feel connected to them as animals yeah they, there's something else now you know the the father has transformed them into some horrific creature so a pretty decent fight scene all things considered very big very bombastic um shot and this is you know again we're, we're diverting to the newer films modern action film photography is exhausting Mm-hmm. Most of the time, like it's just exhausting to watch a quote unquote modern action film. You know, I know in, in terms of, of like people breaking it down, there's that shot of Liam Neeson and taking two going over a chain link fence and it's like 37 shots stick together yeah. for a two second leap over a fence. But it's like, you know, down low, up high to the side on the other side on the reverse. Like it's just it's it's overload. Right. And Lee is is not that kind of director, right? Most of this is shot pretty wide, at least medium. The action is very visible, very clear. You know, nothing is is intentionally obscured or hidden with just over rapid cuts. You know, everything's just very readable, and it's so refreshing to watch an action scene and be able to know what's going on. Uh, you know. I don't think the MCU is as bad at this as most people do. I think there are certain directors in the MCU that are worse about it. Mm-hmm. And and most of the time it's done to hide bad stunt work. Yeah. Right. You know, like you, you had that actor or, uh, you know, whoever actually do that stunt and they did it bad and you need to cover it up. Right. But this, you know, since it's basically CG, he's, he's just sort of letting it all hang out and it's great. Um, so a fantastic action sequence that, you know, Bruce, I don't know about you, but I love the de-hulking sequences in this movie. Yes. Like, I think they are fan 
fantastic because they're not really handled in new movies, right? We get one in Age of Ultron as he shifts back, but it's, there's no cost, right? Like that's the thing with Hulk is like when he transitions out of the Hulk phase and the newer Marvel stuff, there's never a loss, right? It's just like, oh, he just went back to his normal size, but it's like, but how, right? And I know it's science, I know it's science fiction, it's comic books, right? Like it's, it, of course there's no how for this to happen, but this movie at least tries to show that quite literally he is burning off this additional metabolic component, right? Yeah. Like he's, he's steaming and sweating, like literally buckets of water just flowing off of him as he sort of reverses back into regular Bruce. And I love it. I think it is a, such a great effect. It's a part of the Hulk that we didn't really get to see before. No, I mean, they've never been able to handle it in visual media, ever. Because it's so odd. Um, you know, again, in the modern Marvel movies, we, we see him, you know, go from being big green guy to not big green guy. Like, that's that's fine. But this actually tries to show that there is a an exhaustion, a there is a, a loss as that transition takes place. Just as there was pain in shifting into it, there is, is something coming out of it. Um, and again, a lot of it has to do with Banna, uh, you know, because right after he de-hulks, he's still so angry, just uncontrollably angry that he almost kills her, right? He's like choking yeah. her out. Um, and and that's just handled so well. And and I just, I love the way that Banna handles it because he's just, he's, he's just, he grabs his fist, he's just shaking and he can't control it. And then he just like tries to choke her to death. And it, it, it's, it's just, so it's scary. And, and it's frightening. Like, yeah. You feel bad for him. Because you know, at this point, the film has really established he cannot stop this, yeah, and he can't fight it. He can't and the fight more it. He, he tries can't to fight it, it, the worse it's going to get. Um, right. so you really like that's that's a moment where I was just like, oh my god, you know, you know, he could hurt this person he cares about. That must really suck. Um, yeah, it brought just so much emotional weight to a big green dude, and. I I love that about the movie. I just think it's mm -hmm. so unique. It's one of the more unique comic book films I've ever seen. Yeah, it's certainly up there with, <laughs> uh, you know, just a very interesting set of takes. But so he, uh, you know, they have their, their morning after, basically. I mean, it's it's really almost like the morning after scene after, you know, two characters would, would have sex or something. Um, and they're trying to reconcile with these new emotions and experiences that they've had. And it's really the first time, again, and I think a lot of this has to do with Banna's sort of subtlety, it's the first time that you see him collapsed in on himself, mm -hmm. right? You know, so sort of like the, the standard Ruffalo take where everything's internal, right? Everything's inside of the character, like he's holding his own arms, he's sort of leaned in. Um, you know, Banna's afraid in this scene because he has almost injured the woman that he loves and he is out of control. And it's really played well. Um, I, I just think Banna probably doesn't get the credit that he deserves. I think a lot of people were very pro-Banna after this film. Like, they thought he did a good job. But I, I think it is... I don't know if you could heap enough praise on Eric Banna's performance in this movie. Like, he does a fantastic job uh, as these two characters. Uh, so then things begin to accelerate very quickly. Um, Betty has called her father because of the danger to herself and uh, he shows up guns a blazing uh, knocks Bruce out and then uh, we transition really into almost 
another movie. And we do so with one of the best shots in this movie, which is uh, a complete fade out to black with the only uh, visible light being Bruce's face as it just sort of fades out. Uh, and so the last half of the movie, and, and we can talk about it in more detail as we, we sort of shift to our, our overall discussion of the film. In essence, Bruce becomes an experimental object. They don't want to understand him, so they lock him up inside of this very, very interestingly ornate uh, aquarium. Basically, like he's <laughs> he's locked up in this thing, he's in his and aquarium. <laughs> yeah, and he's sedated, and and they are attempting to experiment on him, and they're going to they're perfectly willing to kill him to get at whatever it is inside of him that has uh, you know created this this beast because the military, of course, is going to want that. Right. They want this technology just like they wanted it back when David Banner, his father, was attempting to do it for them in the 70s. So we get all, a lot of really great shots of them taking him down, you know, into this massive facility miles under the desert, you know, presumably like Area 51 on steroids kind of thing. And uh, Thunderbolt has a confrontation with Bet's, uh, with Betty and, you know, sort of tells him, uh, tells her, like, you know, you're in danger and I'm not going to let you anywhere near him, even though she wants to be. And then uh, finally, Nick Nolte is revealed as the villain, right? Like he's he's kind of been in the background as the bad guy, but now he is fully immersed in it because he bombards his cells with gamma radiation. Is that right? He gamma bombards himself. I think that's what happens. Um Yes, and, he tries to uh, recreate the the accident that unleashed all of this. Right, and uh, is successful and becomes... Anyway. There's no direct analog to the comic um, for his character, uh, but I guess he becomes the... Uh, oh, gosh. What is his name? The Amalgamated Man? I forget. Um in essence, he, whatever he touches, he can absorb. Absorbing man. That's what it is. Sorry. Absorbing man. Uh, yeah. He becomes absorbing man, uh, where whatever he touches, he can adopt its properties and, and becomes the, the sort of true villain of the film. So Bruce, who has been locked in this you know, battle with his father from his childhood, now that battle is going to be brought you know, to, to reality. You know, again, there's, I, you know, I think this term gets tossed around too much, but there is this kind of like Shakespearean quality to this where we have these, these fraught family relationships that are then pushed into, you know, the forefront where now the entire world is in danger because these two powerful foes are being when brought he, against Angley each does other. The same thing with crouching tiger, hidden dragon, where it's yeah. got this supernatural, you know, superhuman kind of story that's woven into it almost like a myth, but it's all about character moments. Mm -hmm. And it's all about these sort of emotional character connections. Um, and I know that's, I know that lost a lot of people, but um, when it becomes this sort of father-son struggle, um, it's all about these two characters it's not so much a superhero movie anymore it doesn't feel like a superhero movie it feels like a very dramatic sort of culmination of events i don't know mm -hmm. no absolutely yeah it's again it's it's sort of touching the mythical with the understandable 
right? Which is something that I think Ang Lee has always tried to do to take the sort of mythic larger than life, you know, super, even in sense and sensibility, there's a little bit of that because it's the mythology of the, the middle class in England or the upper class in England at that time that sort of drives the characters in that movie. But to make all of those mythical things feel like very human things, right? Very understandable things. And that happens with Hulk, right? So he, he's being tested on, he is uh, confronted by the Talbot character again, gets cattle prodded, which seems like a really bad idea for a guy that turns into a green rage monster. To, well, they you think know, cattle. they have him under control. <laughs> right. You know, they've, they've got him under control at that point. Uh, they begin their experimentation process. And of course it goes wrong. Hulk breaks out and uh, escapes. And then we get this. Not only does he finally remember everything that has happened to him, right? So he has this extended flashback. Um, I guess David Banner is ex is explaining, you know, sort of what happened, which we'd only seen in flashes before, that the day he came back to, uh, he was going to kill Bruce, right? Like he was going to end Bruce, and the mom stops him. He ends up killing the mom instead. And uh, that's where he's been. He went to prison. And, and Nick Nolte is fantastic in these sequences. Like, really you know, he's, he's very much doing the Nick Nolte thing. Like, he is not doing anything more than what we have seen of him in the past, I guess, if you want to sort of say that. But, like, he's, he's killing it from a dramatic standpoint. He's describing what happened, the mistake that he made, the, the horror of the moment, the realization of what he had done. And, and all of that is, is sort of explained. Bruce is remembering it at the same time, like their oppressed memories are coming out. So Lee's kind of doing a nice parallel thing here where, you know, he's telling us this stuff, but at the same time, Bruce is also apparently remembering all this stuff. And, and again, it, it's sort of that ultimate emotional, this is what has finally pushed him over the edge. So he breaks out of the facility, uh, and now you know. For people who complained about no smashy smashy in this movie, I, I want to know what they're watching for the next forty minutes, <laughs> because it's pretty much all smashy smashy um, with a bit of human drama thrown in there, of course. But Hulk breaks out of the facility. I mean, and, and you know, again, we can't praise a movie solely based on its special effects, but what ILM is doing here Amazing. with the Hulk digital character combining it with all of the live action elements that Lee has shot with, you know, stuff exploding or breaking apart or whatever. There's fluid simulation in here. Hulk is wet. He's covered in water. Like it's, there's just a ton of really, really awesome looking stuff here and things that even in the modern MCU, we, we haven't really seen Hulk do yeah. uh, in the same way. So he breaks out of the facility and then we get to see Hulk do a thing that in the modern MCU, again, we they never get to do. see him do, which is, Jump. traversal travel right it like is, is like jumping and pushing off and floating through the air thing that he does like yeah you know that was like, so cool it, this sequence is joyous right i love my flying sequences in movies i like when even in man of steel a problematic film for lots of reasons that i've, I've kind of become a bit of an apologist for i sort of see what they were trying to do with that one more than i did at its initial release but 
you know, like Man of Steel, like the the flying sequence in Man of Steel as he first flies for the first time. Like it's it's exuberant. It's exciting, right? Uh, even the the freaking How to Train Your Dragon movies, right? The flying sequences that just get me every time. It's such an awesome thing. But this is, even though it's it's dangerous, right? Like Hulk is escaping at this point as he is leaping miles, like literally miles. That this guy is jumping. It's such an awesome, awesome thing. Like it is, it is absolutely cool. And it kind um, of brings you back to that moment where he was eating breakfast and describing like how good it felt to be unleashed and to be the Hulk. There's yeah, the a few power. of those really yeah. glorying shots of like him just enjoying this power. Um, yeah, we and we talked a bit about Lee's nature photography. Like it's really on display here. Like beautiful. some of these these sand dunes that he's leaping on. Um, there's a really great shot, I guess, as he's crossing the Grand Canyon. Um, there's a couple of shots, or at least something in that region, I suppose. Um, it, it's just gorgeous. Like, it's such a cool sequence. The tank battle sequence is also fantastic. Like, anybody who can watch the tank battle sequence and think that it's boring or, or somehow not what you expected from a Hulk movie, I, I don't understand what you mean. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, he just destroys, you know, four M1 Abram tanks. Uh, in interesting ways that is great uh, there's another helicopter battle sequence that's really good um, but just the jumping and traversal stuff that we we don't really get to see Hulk do anything on that scale uh, not very often in the modern films at least a little it bit in Avengers 1 I guess yeah it's more about him punching right it's more about him running through things not this idea that you know the Hulk is is powerful enough that he can jump over a mountain <laughs> like yeah. that that concept is not not necessarily played out there in in the same way like a little bit i guess in event you know the well, two they Avengers also don't want to have to explain it they don't want to have to explain like how much power he has the exactness and the nature of the power whereas this movie is a little more ambiguous in terms of what he can and can't do um i almost like that better because it seems mm. more superhuman than to say, well, the Hulk really can't do that. Sure, totally. <coughs> um, so then um, he he's basically, all of this jumping and leaping is because he's trying to get to Betty, right? So Betty is, is back in, uh, I guess it's supposed to be Berkeley, California. I guess that's where they are. And then we get a really fantastic shot. He, he gets hit with a missile or something as he's leaping and he's falling from the sky. No, he's on the back of, that's right. He gets, he gets on the back of a plane and they tell the plane to basically go into orbit, right? Like just take him as high as you can go, let him run out of oxygen. So they, they take him all the way up into the, into to low orbit. The plane like basically flames out and then Hulk passes out and he's falling back to the earth. And as he's falling, um, I, I, I don't know what you think about this scene, but it's Banna shaving, which we had seen earlier in the movie, and he kind of cuts himself, and you know, there's this little little moment there. We go back to that moment, and he's, you know, the mirror in front of him is fogged, and he's wiping away at it, and on the other side is the Hulk, and where his whole hand is wiping it away, it's just like the Hulk's finger <laughs> is wiping it away on the other side, and and so it's so it's the same size, and then Hulk like grabs him, right, and so again, this is a. a this is awesome because it's like, and Hulk speaks for the first time in that sequence. He's like, you know, calls him puny human, right? Puny human. Um, but it's like him, the mirror, the mirror self, right? The two halves of the same guy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's just a great, 
again, it's a little moment, but it's character. It's building this, this internal struggle between this guy and, and him, his darker self kind of thing. And uh, it's, it's just fantastic. I mean, again, it's not the kind of thing you would see in a modern superhero movie, but it, it is absolutely necessary. Yeah. And uh, works great. Really well. uh, oh yeah. It's just, it's just a cool sequence, man. Uh, then ultimately, you know, Betty soothes the savage beast, you know, again, uh, a common theme in all of the Hulk movies is that this giant green rage monster can only really be satiated and soothed by, you know, the, the object of his affections. Right. And so we could talk about that and women being tools to control, you know, rage monster men, um, and, and being expected to put up with that. Like, I, I don't like that thematically. And I hate that the Hulk has that idea so completely and now almost intrinsically born into the character, but it it's here and we see it again where Hulk finally stops when Betty is reintroduced and, and he, you know, this film to its credit again. does make it feel like it's her specifically and not just the woman I like. Right. Um, I mean, it's it all a bit of a King Kong time. reference for being honest. Like yeah. it's, it's kind of that idea, but I don't know. Um, but Ang Lee spends a long time setting up their relationship and the complexity of their relationship and that it's on again, off again. And there's something holding him back in the relationship, not her, but him. I, I felt like it disabled that Fay Ray in King Kong's grip thing just a little bit by making their relationship more of a focus in the film. Right. Um, yeah, she doesn't exist solely to serve this function, right? Yeah. Like, she is more complex than that, which is very good. Um, and, you know, Jennifer Connelly just, she brings a little bit more character to the love interest role than um, maybe, like, Scarlett Johansson. Um, yeah, I mean... People love her, but I... I'm not a I'm not a huge Black Widow stan. I'm just I'm just not. Mm. Um, so I felt like it backed off from that an appropriate amount, um, indulged in it enough that we got the impression that, you know, yes, this is what backs Bruce away from the Hulk. But it didn't seem, and it still doesn't seem to me, to engage quite as sexistly in that right and i i don't i don't want to get you know mired down in that necessarily but it's it's always something that with the hulk i've felt is a weakness is that they justify his connection to you know the woman that he loves as being this essential thing that holds him in check instead of him holding himself in check. And I, I think that, you know, the, the Marvel movies have gotten away from that a bit. Obviously, they've they've sort of played with that idea. And I, I think this movie does a good job with it. I don't think it's to its detriment that that's a component of it. But it's just something that I feel like it's, it's a very classic idea, a very, you know, classical idea of the woman soothing the savage beast of the man. And it, it's something that probably needs to go away, ultimately. And the film doesn't, rest on that which i do really like he yes they don't no. end up together and and the story is is happy and, and 
everyone is fulfilled by the end. Right. And I think a, a lot of it does have to do with the fact that Bruce is this, I mean, he's a lost boy, basically. Like, I mean, that he had good adoptive parents. He's not, you know, maladjusted. He's not, you know, an outsider. But at the same time, he is is someone who doesn't truly understand himself, which is, is why all of this, you know, the his arc in the film is really to accept that this is part of him, right? Like yeah. that is, is what the movie is trying to get him to do, right? At the beginning, he's sort of happy-go-lucky, he's pretty affable, maybe a little bit of a temper, but not that big of a deal, more emotionally distant than anything. And at the end, he has to, to finally accept, no, my emotions are a part of me. And mm-hmm. it just so happens that one of those core emotions triggers this significant change inside of me. And I think that, you know, again, in a, in a lesser film, that's all going to be lost. Yeah. Right. It's all going to be lost. It's just, I have a rage problem. And that's kind of where the 2008 Hulk goes. It's like, well, I have a rage problem. I, I don't know how to deal with that. It sounds like a, the the embodiment of a fifteen year old boy. Yeah, but this to is that it, he's got rage issues. Right, but this is a far more sort of, you know, in as much as it can be, it's a more nuanced take on how that works. This was so, doing things that comic book movies just did not do, and still no, don't do, and still uh, exactly, and still don't do. Uh, so this all comes to a, a head. Bruce is captured again. And uh, I guess we finally get the sound contraption. They figure out that sound waves can can detrigger the thing. I, I think that's what they're sitting in at the begin at the end, anyway. Um, um. Well, he falls into the lake. Uh, yes, yes. Um, he fall. They uh, they capture him again. They and Betty calms him down. Betty calms him down. They capture the dad, or have captured the dad yeah. as well. But they don't really know that he can do anything just yet right they don't really they think they he's more just, just want to david to banner him. yeah and then we get nick nolte in in full full scenery full chewing nolte. mode um he is just eating scenery alive in these last couple sequences right he's bruce is despondent he's angry he's frustrated um and and he's just kind of egging him on and so we get a uh, I'm going to read this speech because it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so he says, stop what? Think about all those men out there referencing the army in their uniforms, barking and swallowing orders, inflicting their petty rule over the entire globe. Think of all the harm they've done to you and to me, to humanity. And know this, that we can make them and their flags and their anthems and their governments disappear in a flash, you and me. I'm going to go ahead on a limb here, and I don't think it's a very long limb. I'm going to say that we would never hear a speech like that in a modern superhero film. Not even from the bad guy. Like, there's some some politically interesting stuff that the Marvel films try to do with responsibility, government control, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Like, yeah, but like they're more they, like big. They dance around things. it. There's, you know, they they sort of wink at it a little bit. But like, this is Nick Nolte full on saying like, we can demolish the governments of the world and rule as father and son, right? Like, this yeah. is the Darth. This Vader is the moment. Darth Vader moment. Yeah. And and then he eats a power cable. <laughs> 
(laughs) just shoves a power cable in his mouth and absorbs as absorbing man all of this power that they are currently using to sort of try and keep Bruce under control. Uh, and, and this sort of triggers the final conflict, which we don't have to go into beat by beat, but you know, suffice to say they have a, a standoff. They fight with each other. It's a, it's a pretty good fight scene, all things considered. Um, I thought it was very exciting and it was different enough from the Hulk smash stuff that sort of came before um that it it changed up the final act of the film for me yeah um whereas you know most comic book movies just go into like super smash and explosion mode where it's just more explosions and more smashing this one almost stepped back a little bit and made the conflict different somehow um a little less focused on guns and explosions and you know throwing tanks around yeah it's very much bruce versus you know his father right he is fighting the the very thing that you know has caused him all this trauma and has turned him in in many ways into the thing that he is uh really cool sequence in the clouds uh as he's like electric like bruce jumps up into the clouds with him and they're sort of like flashing around we get a little bit of a strobe effect which is very interesting um and uh, they just sort of duke it out, and it's 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 really cool. Like it's a it's a neat sequence. We don't have to to break it down scene by scene or moment by moment, but ultimately, it also becomes the central point where Bruce finally begins to reconcile with his past and his rage and his anger and accept that this is who he is. Right? He has to sort of not fight it. Right? Which again is where Hulk has has you know arrived in the current MCU after seven movies or whatever. But, you know, in this movie, he has to sort of acknowledge that it's a part of him. Uh, and then we get a, a nice little denouement where, uh, you know, we, again, get the the sort of fairly typical, I mean, pretty much every Hulk movie has ended or has had a component like this in it where Bruce goes to some foreign country, he disappears mm-hmm. so he can't be tracked. And then he encounters some local that's doing something terrible. And he's like... Yeah. And we actually get the line, you, you wouldn't like me when I'm don't angry. Don't make me angry. Right. Like, don't like make me, me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, which is now, you know, an iconic Hulk line. That is, and has I think that time. is, that was the best way to finish the film. Yeah. No, it's great. Uh, like, and again, you know, again, I think Marvel would rather you not remember that this movie exists. But technically speaking, the 2008 Norton film uh, starts in this position. Right. Like he is in a foreign country, I think Brazil, something. And uh, and he's in hiding and he's you know learning how to manage his hulkness. So even though, you know, it, this is not canon to the MCU, it does still sort of hang with it, mm-hmm. uh, although it, it rewrites a lot of the, the Bruce and, and Betty stuff. Right. It's, it's not completely outside the realm of possibility that this could be the same uh, Bruce Banner, but. You know, I, I don't think that that's their intent. I, I think the 2008 Hulk is its own thing. But uh, but so it ends with that, uh, and it's great. Uh, the banna, the beard they've got on Banna doesn't look awesome, uh, but it's it's all right. It's enough to let you know that it's he's he's been on the run for a while, which again is more of a callback to the the television show, the sort of transient nature of of the Hulk, than it is. Uh, 
you know, necessarily a comic book thing, you know, in, in the comics, Bruce generally doesn't go to the jungle and hide out until somebody comes looking for him. But you know, that, that is something that the, the TV show was all about was him mm-hmm. transitioning to this next space where he couldn't be found. Uh, and so that's it. I mean, that's, that's really where the film ends and it's a good ending. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's nice. Bruce has moved on. He's accepted who he is. He's acknowledged that the Hulk's a part of him and, uh, he has grown as a, a character, which, uh, in a, in a drama, in a film, you want to see that as often as possible. It is a wonderful origin story. It's one of my favorite superhero origin movies. Um, which we've gotten a bunch of now. I mean, we have to admit that that is probably still 60 to 70% of our superhero movie output is the origin story. And so it is hard to be a unique and good origin story. They're pretty mold, uh, molded at this point, you know? This one is is one of the best to me. Um, it's always stuck with me as just... It, it was better than, than what... It deserved better. Um, I think so. Uh, so let's kind of move into our, our, you know, we've already had our sort of deep dive discussion, but let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that define this film. Um, in general, yes, I I think looking back now, this movie was unduly loathed at its time. Um, because it came out in a time when superhero movies, uh, which again, we're talking about X-Men, X2, um, I mean, the Fantastic Four movies were coming out around this time. Like, <laughs> they were goofy, right? They were were yeah. exercises in silliness in a lot of cases. Uh, X two obviously was very serious. X Men was handled very seriously for the most part. Um, but it didn't you know, shy away from the fact that those characters are still silly at their core. Right, and they and if anything, they were kind of like poking fun at it. Like, hey, this guy's claws. <laughs> yeah. Get it? It's dumb. Uh, and Singer, as much as I enjoy his superhero film output and and his contributions to superhero film genre films in general, is inestimable. Right? Like, I mean, he he kicked it off in a lot of ways. Um, I think he the balance that he struck was one of sort of a wink wink nudge nudge superhero tone and that was what was expected right but again we are we are two years away less than two years away with the release of this film from batman begins and and you know i mentioned uh, you know i've talked about my wife before we went to see batman begins together uh, we didn't have kids at this point so you know we're go see movies all the time and you know we walked out of that and my wife who's is a, a wonderful wonderful woman who deals with all of my my comic book obsessions you know the pounds and pounds of plastic figures that sit on my shoulder uh, on my 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 shelves next to my desk like and and she's she's very cool about it and she loves it as much as i do but i remember leaving batman begins and her turning to me and saying like that was one of the most exciting movies i have ever seen like it was incredible and i was like yeah yeah it was like it was wow and honestly, that's because it was handled well. It was, it was a great origin story, again, like we were talking about. Um, but it was completely serious, right? Yeah. It, it had absolutely no goofiness to it. I mean, there are goofy moments, right? There's humor, obviously. Like, it's, it's, movies have those. But I mean, like, Batman in that movie is never once mocked or made fun of. Right, like nobody looks at Batman and, and Batman Begins and goes like, "What are you wearing?" 
What is that? <laughs> oh my goodness. No one does that. The moment they see him, they are terrified, right? And it's not, I mean, Cillian Murphy at the end is he's, you know, going into full scarecrow mode is like, oh, the bat's coming, you know, that kind of thing. But then that's where we get the demon bat scene where where he's like got the, the black blood dripping from his mouth. Mm -hmm. Like that, that movie is serious as a heart attack. And this movie hangs with that movie. Yeah. Like that's the movie that this movie works with because it too series is a heart attack shot brilliantly takes its characters seriously, takes its drama seriously, tries to build conflicts and relationships between characters that feel believable and natural and that resolve in meaningful ways. Exactly. Right. And, and that is not what comic book movies did in 2003. That's not what blockbuster movies did in 2003. And it's arguably still not what they do. Yeah. And, and again, it, yeah, genre films of that type have definitely shifted in the other direction, right? The only guy trying to make like serious superhero movies has been Zack Snyder and nobody went and saw those movies. And, and he just, he has a touch of the Bayhem in his right. film making yeah. that, that under, undercuts any seriousness that he tries to put in. Right. And that's really the problem with with Snyder's superhero films for me. Yeah, um, it's it's an inconsistency in their tone. He wants he wants all of it, right? He's not willing to be completely serious like Nolan. He wants a bit of the goofy and a bit of the fun. Um or that was being mandated by his superiors, which is yeah. also entirely possible. Um I think Justice League is the perfect example of of Zack Snyder's idea of a superhero movie and DC's idea of a superhero movie and and what they want versus what he was producing. Which is why we're going to get the Snyder cut now, which again I'm ambivalent about. I don't care. Um whatever. Like the Justice League we got is the Justice League we got. If you want another version of it, fine, but it's not going to erase it's, history it and it's not going to save that franchise. Um but yeah, I, I, it's it's hard for me to care much at this point, uh, as much as I want to. Because I honestly, I think, in terms of the the grandiose nature of the characters, a lot of the DC characters are more impactful and meaningful to me. Uh, you know, Superman as an icon is something that the moment I, I see Superman rendered on screen, I get a little excited. I'm just like, oh my god! I'm that way with Batman. Yeah, Batman's in the same category, right? But I mean, like even the the Brandon Ruth Superman, I I get. There are um, moments in that movie that I just get ecstatic about. I'm like, that yeah. movie was a masterpiece. I'm yeah, still gonna yeah. defend it. I saw it four and a half times in the theater. I don't know what happened with the halftime. I think it had to be picked up. <laughs> sure, um, sure. But that was that movie was huge for me. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I I think. You kind know, of like I, this one. It was just it was one that stuck with me as being the spectacle that I wanted in a comic book movie. Yeah. So I mean, I think in terms of Hulk, we're you know we're both in agreement that this is a movie that was just slightly ahead of its time. That probably should have been given a bit more due. Um, I think some people recognized it for what it was trying to do at the time, which was to just be a good movie. Um, but unfortunately comic book audiences are fickle and and they they want very specific things different things and at different times 
Yeah, and and right now, if anything, Marvel has has capitalized on a very specific zeitgeist and is is now capable of producing films that satisfy the bulk of their audience. Not everybody, right? Like, there are a lot of people that don't like where the MCU has gone, but you know, the most most of the people who are seeing those movies are, they walk away satisfied, and and that's that recipe that has made them super successful. Uh, and this movie doesn't really fit with that, right? This is very much, this is much more bespoke, a much more specifically designed and created sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would like to think that it would have a space in today's, you know, superhero film conversation, but I, I still don't know if people would accept a serious movie about the Hulk in this way. Yeah. Um, especially given how now his depiction is going to be much like this movie was referencing his depiction in the television show. Now his depiction will always be referenced against the MCU. Yeah. And so now taking him in a more serious direction or a more complex direction, it's not going to feel don't, right. Yeah. But I don't know if people will be able to accept it. Um, um, that's sad to me because this, this movie, this was the era of Marvel films that I enjoyed the most. Yeah. It was wild West, weird. man. Like, like anything, Ghost Rider anything is still went, one of my dude. favorites. Ghost Rider, Daredevil, um, you know, all the Mark Stephen Johnson. Stuff. You know, same, you can say a lot about them. You can hate them if you want to, but they were something different. Mm. You know, this movie was just genuinely different. Um, yeah, you know, Danny Elfman did the score. Yeah, this I haven't very even good talked score. about the music. The music is awesome. Yeah, it has a really very, good. very kind of original sound to it that I think a lot of comic book movies have tried to copy because Danny Elfman is one of those composers that people try to ape if they can. Right. If Danny Elfman has done a soundtrack in the style of the movie you're making, you're going to listen to it. Yeah. Um, just everything in this movie is, is very solid. I would say the one downside is that it's, it's universal pictures. <laughs> Yeah, Universal has had their significant struggles, especially in terms of marketing. They so rarely know how to market one of their films. Uh, every once in a while, they get a, they get it right, but it's it's very rare, uh, and that still holds true today. Um, so, in terms of of our our sort of overall look at the film, you know, we've talked a lot about character. The characterization in this film is great. Obviously, we've discussed the plot. I think the plot is. It is slow, which this was maligned for. Like this is this is every bit a two hour and five ten minute movie, but that's purposeful, right? Yeah. It is it is taking its time to justify its big moments. And in traditional you know dramatic filmmaking, that's what you do, right? The bulk of your film is is about character and conversation, with these bombastic moments that punctuate it. And so while this movie could be maligned for being slow, I would say it's more deliberate in its pacing, right? Like it is very specifically arranged to create specific effects. And, you know, could it be swifter? Sure, right? We could have a few more action beats. Like, this definitely does not follow the, you know, action beat every 10 pages that yeah. most modern action scripts do. Um, it does not have that. But I, again, I, I, it does bother me in this movie because the performances are compelling enough and the character work is good enough that I, I think it, it sees itself through very easily. And it takes a really complicated character in the Marvel Universe to represent and it gives us a unique 
and compelling representation of him. Because mm-hmm. the Hulk is a hard sell. I mean, how do you how oh, do you even sell him as a superhero? Because he's not really heroic in this movie, Mm-mm. and in most of his deeds, he's out of control. Yeah, he's a and force of nature. This yeah. this focused on that force of nature aspect, um, right? Yeah, and and that's kind of where the I guess the MCU was smart is that they started with him. I mean, we get the one scene in Avengers where he's like, oh, he's wrecking the place or whatever. But, you know, they they get him to the in-control hero version of himself as rapidly as they possibly can Mm -hmm. so that there's no fear in the audience about what is the Hulk going to do. Um, Again, they toy with it. They play with it. You get a little bit of it. But for the most part, it's... He was never in real danger at all. Yeah, everything's fine, you know. Um, But the one thing that, that I really love about this movie... I loved about it at the time, regardless of anything else, is the editing, right? So, it again, this is probably difficult to describe in words, but this film is edited like a comic book page. Yes. Um, it is incredibly complicated, especially with 2003 technology. Like, I can't even imagine how difficult some of the stuff that they were doing is. But in essence, you can think of this film and every frame of this film as a comic book panel. And Lee is doing layering. He's doing wipes. Uh, There is a fantastic shot as two characters are walking through doorways where the doors meet in the middle and then they flip and go the other direction. Like he is layering visuals on top of each other during one of the big action sequences in the desert at the end, the camera camera pulls back uh, you know, camera in quotes because I don't even know if you can call it that at that point the camera pulls back and we just see a wall of images right like like yeah. all of the stories you know happening simultaneously and then it just zooms in on one like oh I'm gonna pick this one to look at now which quite literally emulates the panel structure of a comic book right which yeah. will show you oh here's you know Batman standing over here and then the second panel is Joker standing on the other side and these things are happening in parallel to each other but I'm going to show you them in sequence and film doesn't have this restriction right you can just do whatever right you can just wipe over to that or you can you know move the camera to show the character in the same shot but he intentionally replicates the feel and structure of a comic book in an absolutely brilliant way it is it is so immersive and it feels so cool because if he needs to show a character's reaction he'll just pop up a little screen that shows that character's reaction down Which in the corner which is exactly what see. a comic book would do <laughs> that's what a comic book would do right and and then you know when we are getting the full screen effect it's like your splash pages in a comic book where you're just getting the the, the super wide here's the destruction you know mm-hmm. as hulk tosses this tank or whatever but it is gorgeous, and it holds up so well. And it, and as I was watching, it reminds me of another film that we are going to absolutely talk about on this film because I think it is probably one of the greatest films of all time, and the fact that people don't realize this is infuriating to me, and that is Speed Racer. <laughs> um, and I know you, you probably don't agree with me on this one, but I think Speed Racer is almost a perfect film. Uh, it is definitely the perfect family film because it is a film that has everything for the family that you can enjoy. Uh, but we'll talk about that later. But in any case, what speed racer does is what this movie did first. 
And that is make film feel like something else. Yeah. Right. To make a movie feel like an anime television show. Like a creative extension of a medium. Right. And, and the editing in Speed Racer is gorgeous and brilliant and amazing. And it's, it's so exciting and, and awesome. I love watching it. It's, it's great. But this movie was doing that too, uh, five, six years before Speed Racer, you know, came into existence. And it's such a cool effect. Like, I wish, I wish that a, mar- a modern Marvel movie would do this. Because my, my main issue with the MCU films is that the vast majority of them are visually uninteresting. They have a Marvel house style, and while directors are certainly given their little opportunities for flair, you know, James Gunn probably gets the most with the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. He, he has the longest leash, apparently, to sort of be crazy and do interesting things. The vast majority of those movies are shot in a very bog-standard way, yes. you know, and it's it's just not exciting from a visual standpoint most of the time. And I would love it if one of these movies would try something like this. Like it would be incredible, Uh, especially with, again, the technology we have now, the budgets these movies are working with now, um, the special effects that they could, you know, apply to them to make this work. It's, you know, it's, it's what they call the limit. And, and they just, they set a much lower limit than that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's all about having that most palatable to the most people kind of thing. And I get that. I understand it. But it's such a cool effect in this movie. Like, I almost think watching this movie is enough just to see how they handle that stuff. Because it's so cool. Um, you know, the there's a, a really cool transition where Bruce is on his bike and he's riding, you know, frame left to frame right. And, you know, it's... It, it's transitioning to a shot of him like coming around to, uh, the little corner to his house. And instead of just, you know, cutting to it, they have the background roll up and Bruce is maintained in his motion, but the background just rolls into position and fades into place. And it's just, it's awesome. Like, it's just so cool. So I, I think just the, the overall design of the film, the editing of the film, the structure of the film is, is perfect. Right. And Ang Lee is, is, that's where he excels in my mind is, is the way that he assembles the final cuts of his films. But, you know, so it, it works super, super well. Um, so I don't know. Did you have any other components of the film that you wanted to call out as uh, interesting or exceptional? Um, I really like that he didn't, and this is, this is more of a, a thing that I see in modern superhero films and I did not see in this film is he he went with a fairly bright color palette. Mm-hmm. Feels Especially like Hulk. Hulk is a very bright green. Very uh, bright green. And yeah. he, he leans into like the, the blue pants. He doesn't quite do purple. He does more of like a deep blue. Um, I, I really liked that it didn't shy away from color. It didn't go into like this gray and black and dreary sort of depressing look because with all of the heavy themes that the film sort of swings around you could easily do that Mm -hmm. um but he doesn't allow it he always keeps that sort of lightness of color from the comic books yeah i mean you know it's a little bit of a reference to you know hulk being green was an error right it was a mistake he was supposed to be gray 
And in some of the original comics on the covers, he was gray, but internally they couldn't mix the ink appropriately to get the gray color. So they decided on green just so that he'd be visually distinct from other characters. And so it, it plays a bit on that. Like he's, he's out of place in this world, right? Like the, the Hulk doesn't quite fit in with the visual palette of life, right? Yeah. But it, it, it's such an interesting callback to his origins and, and both his, that and his status in, in the world. Like he is otherworldly. He is not something that should fit into everything else around him and be homogenized, right? He exactly. would be this exceptional thing. And it is just such a, a cool visual. And again, I think it's Lee playing uh, with comic book and reality, right? How would this really be in the world if it existed? And it's, it's just, a, it's a really, really effective technique and he's consistent with it, right? It's not just in certain moments that he gets that it's all the way through, which you can tell was a, a sort of thoughtful choice. Um, you know, in terms of, of the film itself, you know, other potential topics. I mean, the only other thing we could talk about is the script. Um, the, the primary script writer here is James, uh, I guess Seamus is his last name. Uh, it was a, worked with Lee on everything. He's kind of like Lee's script guy. Um, and so he's credited first, but then there are two other, uh, screenwriters attributed mm -hmm. and, um, these additional screenwriters are, they feel like they were brought in as punch up. Right. So I, I actually would be very interested to see what James Seamus's cause he's still got the story credit. Right. But I would be very interested to see what Seamus's initial screenplay looked like, because I imagine it leaned even further into this highly dramatic, very serious mode. But then some pearl clutchers at the studio probably said this, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so what we get, the second uh, screenwriter is Michael France, uh, who seems like he was the Marvel house guy in the early 2000s. Because he was credited as a writer in Goldeneye, but there were... From what I understand, there were dozens of people that wrote on Goldeneye because they had yeah. no idea what to do with that movie. Um, but he's, other than that, he wrote the first Fantastic Four film and he wrote The Punisher, uh, the, the Thomas Jane Punisher. <laughs> Which, again, those were the Marvel movies of this era. They didn't really have a formula. They were just trying stuff, seeing what they could do. Universal had bought a bunch of different licenses to work with. And so this guy, France, was was kind of seemed like the Marvel script doctor guy. Like, okay, we've got a Hulk script here. We want you to go in and we want you to Hulk it up, right? So I imagine he did some punch-up. And then uh, we had John Turman, who, uh, again, wrote on Fantastic Four, uh, the second one, The Rise of the Silver Surfer, uh, which he probably got because of this movie. But he's still working today. He's, he's done a lot of TV stuff, but... Uh, the one that I wanted to call out from his uh, repertoire was The Crow, Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> uh, which was the Crow television show starring Mark DeCascos, who yep. we mentioned in one of our previous episodes, and we'll yep. mention again. Um, so he had done some writing for that show. It's, it's like some of his earliest credited writing stuff, which I thought was just hilarious. So he probably got the Hulk job because 
oh, he's written superheroes before. It's fine. You know, so again, just a weird writing. And it wasn't a team, right? These were all separate screenplays. So more than likely, this was all kind of cobbled together. And, and Seamus assembled the sort of final version of all this stuff. But I, I would be very interested to see uh, Seamus's, you know, sort of first take on the story uh, before, you know, sort of cobbling some elements together. Um, in terms of calling out anything else, I mean, I think we've talked about a lot. I think uh, there's some great performances here. I'm kind of, after watching this, I'm kind of sad that Sam Elliott wasn't allowed to continue as Thunderbolt Ross. I know. Because uh, I think he's excellent. Like, he's he's great in that part. Uh, it's it's not a huge part. He's in this movie a bunch, but it's it's not a ton of stuff to do. And he's pretty one note. You know, he's just screaming a lot. Although he does have some fatherly affection for Betty, of course. But uh, I th William Hurt's Thunderbolt Ross is so understated. Like, he's just so laconic, which William Hurt is in most of his roles, I guess. But he just, he doesn't have that rage that I would associate with, you know, Thunderbolt Ross, the right. four-star military general, like Sam Elliott does. Like, Elliott really treats it. He feels like a real military guy. Uh, whereas the Thunderbolt Ross in the, the current MCU, I, I never really got that from him. You know, he never really felt like an army general, but... Um, you know, but there are some great performances in here. It's a relatively small cast. It's really just Banna, Connolly, Elliot, uh, Nolte, and, and Josh Lucas is in there too. But it's really the, the, a little close-knit group that are the, the focus, even though there is a great deal of scale. Uh, so there's some really good acting performances too, I think. Um, you know, you can definitely enjoy this from that perspective as well. Uh, young Daniel Day Kim, pre-Lost. Yes. Yeah, uh, playing one of the... Uh, one of the aide de camp to uh, to Thunderbolt Ross, uh, which I I had completely forgotten he was in the movie. Saw him and I was like, "Whoa, hey Daniel Day Kim, how's it going?" Because uh, yeah, I love him. He's been around for a long time, and uh, I've always enjoyed his uh, his presence. And obviously, came to know him in Lost, but Lost was the the year after this, so uh, very cool. But all right, so anything else you want to uh, talk about? Anything else of interest? Just that. I really, really love this movie, and watching every time I watch it, I love it a little bit more. It's one of those strange films that it was so disliked when it came out. I, I remember having so much trouble finding other people who enjoyed the film mm. um, that I'm glad that people are coming around to it, but I sort of wish that Marvel would come around to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, at least to the idea that frankly not every superhero fits into that mcu mold right especially with marvel marvel has a huge and diverse cast of characters of all levels right like and the some of the love that people have for the netflix shows like daredevil like jessica jones i think reflect this because some of those characters the serious treatment is the only treatment right how do you yeah. tell the light and fun origin story of Matt Murdock, child whose father was murdered and who was blinded by an industrial waste accident. How do you make that fun? Right? Yeah. How do you make that goofy and be a little like, well, I'm just a blind guy making my way in the world. Well, we've, no, we've like it's seen with it's, stuff like Batman Returns. What happens when you try to take serious and make it too funny? Yeah. It, uh, some of these characters, that serious treatment, it fits them. And Marvel, the MCU by all accounts, I mean, they hate the Netflix shows, from what I understand. That's why we're, we probably will never see any of those characters in the MCU. 
Um, but you know, Daredevil's a good example. The, the Daredevil version of Punisher is also a pretty decent handle, although I think the Punisher is an entirely different conversation. That character has been co-opted by the wrong groups who completely yeah. misunderstand who that character mm-hmm. is and what his goals are and what he's meant to represent because he is not a good dude. And that's the yep. point. But, um, it, it, you know, there are superheroes that this kind of treatment is perfect for them. And I'm kind of sad that it's probably not likely to get a movie like this for some of those characters. Like the big rumbling right now is Moon Knight, like wanting to bring Moon Knight into the the Marvel Universe, who is kind of like the, in terms of the MCU, Moon Knight is kind of like the current Batman style character, you know, Vigilante Justice. I guess. Yeah, I mean, like Moon Knight's never been like as big, but he's a cool character. You could do some stuff with him. He's got some Egyptian mythology roots that are kind of interesting potentially to explore. But I don't know how that character is going to work in the current revision of the MCU, unless they have just bombastic changes in store for this next set of films that they're trying to set up. And I don't think they do. I, I don't either, right? You know, it's it's like Venom, right? Like, how do you do yeah. Venom? I mean, and they're never going to get that chance because Sony's going to keep making Venom movies as long as they possibly can. Like, like, they keep that deal going. But, like, how do you work a guy who eats people's heads into the, the universe that is the Avengers are in. A dark, dark time in comic books yeah. where it, the fun kind of went away and mm-hmm. it was like, here's... Well, I mean, that was when we got all of the, you know, Marvel Knights and DC Vertigo mm-hmm. and... Yeah, Vertigo especially. Like, Vertigo's where that exploded. Um, John Constantine, man. Yeah, all these gritty stories about you know, anti-heroes and, and bad people and complex people that mm-hmm. you know weren't really on the side of good or bad because sometimes you're not on the side of either one um it's it muddied that that approach to comic books where it's like here is the hero he's saving the day and it's interesting that marvel has has leaned back against that construction of like here are the heroes they're saving the day Mm -hmm. and they've really moved away from that serious tone even though they spent so much time in the 80s and 90s building up that serious tone right yeah i mean really i guess you could say you know you're talking frank miller and chris claremont you know those dudes who were were trying to tell much more serious stories with these you know sort of silly you know characters who had been rendered goofy by the 70s you know uh and marvel's constant attempts to evade being censored in any way like they basically just turned the dial to 11 and for goofy town and dc did too i mean like you know it wasn't really until denny o'neill in the 80s uh you know with death of uh jason todd and all that stuff Mm -hmm. uh death in the family that that dc tried to get serious again and then of course watchmen was an atom bomb that blew everything up and everybody was trying to be watchmen for the next 15 20 years and they still are in a lot of ways and they still are yeah i mean everybody's still chasing alan Moore when it comes to comic book storytelling and they should really stop dude doesn't even own a tv he doesn't want yeah he has no interest in anything that's happening now um we did watch uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen not too long ago that movie's actually still pretty good again is another one that i think was unfairly destroyed in this time period of of, uh, comic book adaptations because you read the comic book and it's like what did you want what yeah. did you really want this to be? What did you think this be? was going to be? Nobody in America cares about Alan Quartermain. Like, what are you no. talking about? 
I mean, maybe those people who saw the Richard Chamberlain movies in the 80s, but I don't think uh, so. The all 12 of those people in America? Yeah, well, maybe 11. So uh, so in any case, like, I, I think, you know, we're pretty much on the same page here. That This is, you know, this is not a podcast about finding hidden gems. It's about finding these delicious failures that are still worth our time. And, and this is a movie that is striding... It is a, a delightful and wonderful failure at defying expectation uh, to the point that this is a, a pretty much hard recommend across the board. Yeah. Like it's a great film, but don't go into it expecting the joke every two minutes, fun, lighthearted, never going to think about it again, but I remember enjoying fact, myself. Prepare yourself. Movie with Batman Begins, you know, yeah, walk into right. it with that attitude of this is the kind of comic book movie that I'm going to watch. Right. And and if you do that, I think it's it's a really enjoyable film. It's got a tremendous amount of, of family drama, this kind of core, you know, broken father-son relationship with this, you know, the, these interesting metaphors about what we what we get from our parents, right? Like this idea that are that we inherit, you know, not just our parents' genes, but their baggage, right? Like we yeah. take that on to ourselves. You know, Bruce winds up working in the same field as his father, never even knowing, right? Like he's he's inherited all this stuff. And what do you do with that? How do you reconcile that? Can you escape that? Can you come to some terms with the flaws that are transmitted to us by the people that made us, right? How Can do you, you deal with that? And that these bad aspects of yourself and still be a good person. Yeah, and that core idea is so strong and interesting in this movie. I, again, it would if if this was a quiet family drama about you know a couple living in the English countryside and the biggest and most bombastic thing that happened in it was you know a fight at the dinner table where somebody got hit with a cup. It would have been an Oscar winner. There would have been, yeah, like this would have been Oscar-worthy praise uh, just all over it. But because those emotional relationships are played out through a giant hulking green monster that blows up tanks, it was dismissed. Yeah. And and that is probably the greatest thing that is that is wrong with it. Uh, again, some people saw it. Roger Ebert saw it. He saw what it was trying to do. Said, this is a great movie. This is for people that just want to watch a good movie that happens to have this crazy stuff in it. And, and I think he's right. Right. And, and as with so many films, it was ruined and destroyed by its audience's expectations more mm -hmm. than anything else. I agree. All right, so uh, let's talk about our one thing. I kind of tipped the hat on mine, but uh, so what is one thing that you think could be done to take this this failure piece movie uh, or this failure of a film and and turn it around? What do you think? I am going to put the blame entirely on studios and say better and different marketing for this film. Mm. I don't think it was effectively marketed. No, the trailer. Um, you can watch the trailers. The trailers are terrible. Yeah, and it doesn't. It doesn't communicate what the film had in store for its audience. Um, I don't think any of the media surrounding it really let you know that you're not in for a smashy, smashy ride. There's smashy, mm -hmm. lots of it. Oh, there is, yeah. But it's, that's not what the movie's about, necessarily. Right. Um, that is not the end goal. 
and I really hang that on on studios. I think it's their job to to portray these films as accurately as they can in trailers and you know photographs, stills, art design. And I feel like all of that sort of betrayed this movie and yeah. sold it to people as something that it wasn't. Yeah, for sure. And this was just, again, it's hard to, to communicate, you know, 17 years on after Marvel has become this juggernaut, but this was the wild West, man. Nobody knew what they were doing when it came to Marvel, when it came to superhero movies in general, there was no template. There was no gold standard. X-Men had come out and did okay. So people wanted to make these movies, but nobody had an idea, right? Of, of what was going to work. And it people wasn't really not nostalgic about comic books yet. Yeah. I mean, it just had not reached that critical mass. You know, comic books were not the household things that they, well, comic book characters, comic books are still not household things. Nobody still cares about comic books <laughs> uh, except for, you know, people like us. But <laughs> the, in terms of film, like nobody knew what they were looking for. All they knew was that, oh, I, I know this character a little and I, I want to see them. But yeah. then without realizing it, they did come in with expectations. And when those expectations weren't met, they were very upset. The Punisher movie actually is not a bad one to discuss as well. Uh, so we may have to that cover movie. that one in the future. Because <laughs> I, I don't hate it. Uh, I think I love Thomas Jane. Like I have an unreasonable affection for Thomas Jane. I love watching him. I think he's got a great face. I think he's got a really good sort of carriage of himself when he's, you know, performing. Um, even I Frankenstein, which is a terrible, <laughs> oh my goodness, that movie <laughs> really is awful bad. from top to bottom. I'll watch it just to watch him punch the crap out of people. It's fine. Um, so I, I mean, I like Thomas Jane, but that movie is nuts. Like yeah. it makes no sense. Tom, it John has one Travolta? of my favorite murders. Oh my gosh. The what, knife what was it? Through the, it has one of my favorite on-screen kills, the knife through the, the chin. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? And you see it between his teeth. I was like, wow, yeah. that happened in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Like it's crazy. Um, and, uh, and, uh, John Travolta being drugged behind a car. Oh my Just, God. <laughs> I'd be like, I, I don't know, man, that movie's, that movie's pretty cool. Like, uh, a lot of people like the, the, the pseudo sequel, the Punisher war zone one that came after that. Cause it's very much influenced by the comics, but anyway, uh, so it was the Wild West, and everybody was trying stuff. And and this, I think, is probably the greatest film to come out of those experimentations. Uh, it's very good and very worth your time. Uh, so my one thing, as I said, was a little bit of script. I mean, you can feel that this was cobbled together from several different scripts, and then they sort of assembled it, and then you know Lee and Seamus sort of really honed in on the things that they were interested in, the father-son drama, the father-daughter drama, the relationship between Betty and, and Bruce. You know, they really honed in on those things and tried to focus them down. But there were a couple of missed opportunities. You know, for me, it's it's just, you know, communicating, you know, between Bruce and Betty as the Hulk, you know, that scene where, where they could have really made that strong emotional connection and, and, you know, harkened back to those previous scenes. But, you know, I don't have any major one single thing that uh, would, you know, fix this because the only really big things would fundamentally change some of the core things about the movie that work really, really well. Yeah. Um, you would have to make significant changes across the board. Um, 
you know, maybe, maybe some different casting, right? Like I, I love Nolte in the film, but I'm not sure that he's the best for that role. There might've been some other people that could have done it better. But uh, again, you take Nolte out of that mix, what else are you going to have to change? You know? And, and um, would those, would those moments with him and Bruce where they're having, you know, the, the Darth Vader conversation, would those moments have rang as, as interesting? Yeah. I mean, Nolte brings this very unique energy to the entire process. And so, yeah, for me, it's just little, little moments that I think would have elevated it a bit. I mean, if we're being honest, if you're just really trying to tell this story in as brisk a way as possible, you could probably shave 20 minutes off the end without doing too much damage. But again, what else are you going to have to sacrifice to do that? Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, Lee is a competent enough and a accomplished enough director that he knows what needs to be there to make that stuff work. And, and, it, and, and, and it's it does. interesting. People talk about the, the running time of this film that, you know, that it's too long and, and it's boring when now I feel like modern action films and superhero films, especially are longer <laughs> they are. and mm -hmm. they don't, they don't celebrate. This is going to sound like such a, such a cork sniffery thing to say, but they don't celebrate any emptiness of frame. No, everything is packed it's, in a modern it's action how film. How much to, can we to the fit brim. on the screen? Yeah. How there are many very few things moments can of quiet. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and this film celebrates those those moments of the empty frame, those moments of silence. You know, it'll it'll have a, an effective close up. When it uses close ups, they're really effective. Mm -hmm. um, like the the part where he's eating breakfast and talking about the the feeling of being the Hulk. I think part of that's done in close up, isn't it? Uh, yeah, very close up. Uh, there's there's two close up shots that they alternate between, and then uh, there's a bunch of close up shots of his hands in the plate, like with the yeah. chicken, right? There's there's a lot of that, and then some some cutaways to wide, but you know, and those are just those are our film that is not Western, like it's not a Western approach to appreciate emptiness in a frame, mm -hmm. to appreciate composition you know our our approach with western superheroes and and action movies is to just like you said put as much on there as possible have as much going on as much happening so that we can have as much information bombarding people as possible and you lose right. so much storytelling when you're overwhelming your audience with just stuff Happening. Yeah, it's it's film as information delivery rather than experience. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, which is which kills me because obviously there's a hunger for it because I would say that you know the John Wick series does that like it it has its quiet moments to punctuate the action, and and obviously has been very successful and worked very well not to the scale of you know, Marvel movies but but yeah it's it, it, it's about using film to communicate information to an audience versus to communicate things like emotion to an audience you know and and again you're you're not getting it wrong but you're just leaving so much of what a film can do on the table like you're just not taking advantage of the medium in the way that you could be you're not exploiting what a movie can do to a human being if all you're doing is these very specific things and and hulk at the very least even if, if some of those ways are limited by its storytelling, its runtime, its comic book character, whatever, at least it's trying to 
deliver all of what a film can deliver to an audience, right? To give them all of those things rather than just this tiny little piece of them, right? Yeah. And and I think it succeeds, you know, pretty remarkably there. Uh, all right. Well, let's give it a uh, percentage score. So again, our, our failure piece rating score is a, a zero to a hundred percent. We like to think of it as a circle, right? So uh, basically a film that can, even a bad film can go high enough up on the scale that it's actually becoming good again. And so um, for me, uh, I'll go ahead and say that this film is, is very high. Uh, like it's, it's basically very close to being just a good movie, right? Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give this one like a, an 88. Uh, this is what I, I came up with because I think that this is definitely worth people's time. It's a watchable film. It's still got Hulk. It's still got Smashing. It's got a fantastic performance by Eric Bana. Um, there is a lot to love with this movie, so it's it's pretty high on my scale. I I am such a huge fan. I mean, you know how I stand this movie. For, for many years, I have stayed in this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, you have been so defending I'm, it for quite some time. Just from the moment I saw it, I was like, this is something. This is important. This is really good. Um, so I'm going to go 95. I, I, nice. I would, I would give this an A, an, an emphatic A. <laughs> I just love <laughs> this it. This movie is an A. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's pretty high on, on my list, too. I think it's, uh, it's definitely worth anybody's time. I came into it as a big fan of Ang Lee because Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was actually one of the first movies I ever saw by myself in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, I saw it when it was still playing and and because I loved Eric Bana so much. And I just, I felt like this this film just really celebrated a really wonderful actor and a really fantastic director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ang Lee, I mean, is... He's one of the best directors of his generation. He is is not incredibly prolific. He does not work constantly. He sort of takes projects, you know, four to five years at a time. Uh, more recently, he did things like Life of Pi, if, you, if you're not familiar with Ang Lee, mm -hmm. which was great. It's a wonderful adaptation of a very complex book. Uh, we're going to talk very soon about uh, an unadaptable story. Uh, and Life of Pi was one of those stories, like <laughs> unadaptable from a, a, yeah. a novel standpoint, and he pulled it off with aplomb. It's a very good film. Um, you know, so uh, The Ice Storm is another one of his. Uh, it came out in 97. That is, is pretty underrated, in my opinion. It's a very, very good film. Uh, but again, quiet, carefully constructed character dramas, right? And, and the Hulk sort of has that in its DNA, uh, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, all right, so a uh, hard recommend from us. Uh, absolutely check out Hulk 2003 if you can find it. Again, Marvel seems yeah. to be doing its best to wipe it from the face of the planet as much as it can. But uh, if you can stumble across, across a copy or pull a copy off of Amazon, I, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, okay, so where can people find you on social media? I am Baskinator on Twitter and The Baskinator on Instagram. And you should check me out on Instagram because it's fire. Definitely. Uh, best way to get a hold of me is at T Baskin on Twitter. That's really the only one that I check these days, although I do have some other stuff too. Um, you can find uh, us together. Uh, our failure piece stuff is uh, F Peace Theater on Twitter uh, or at F Peace Theater. And uh, then you can email us if you have any questions at failurepiece at gmail.com. Uh, and we will be setting up some other uh, options too. Uh, you can find our podcast or you can share it with other people if you want to at anchor.fm forward slash failure piece theater. 
And uh, we are listed on most of the major services now. Still waiting on iTunes submission and a few other things, but you should be able to find us if you go hunt around. But uh, the direct link to our anchor site is certainly a good way to get a hold of us or to pass it around to anybody that you think might be interested. <clears throat> All right. Um, so we will certainly catch you in the next episode. Thank you for listening on this one. Uh, we loved talking about the Hulk and we all love talking about the next one too. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> All right. Have a great day, everybody. We'll see you soon.